This is Jocko Podcast number 53 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. At what point do you quit? At what point do you give in? At what point do you surrender? And what is it that makes you surrender? The enemy? Fatigue? Hunger? Thirst? Bitter cold? Who are these men that decide that they will not surrender no matter what? What will, what human will do they have that they decide they are going to fight on no matter what they face? Well, I will tell you, these men are men. They're human beings like you, like me, human beings that decide they are going to fight on despite being surrounded by the enemy, despite the hunger and the danger and the thirst and the bitter cold, they decide they will not surrender. And we can find examples of these men throughout history. But one of the foremost examples comes from the Korean War. In late November and into mid-December of 1950, when 30,000 UN troops, mostly American, were surrounded by 120,000 communist Chinese forces. And these Americans were attacked, attacked by the enemy and attacked by the, the bitter freezing cold and attacked by hunger and fear. And yet they would not and they did not surrender. And tonight we're going to hear from a lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps, Joseph R. Owen who served as a mortar section commander for Baker Company, 1st Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division. In his book, which is called Colder Than Hell. And the book starts off with one of the best short overviews of the Korean War I've ever read, likely because it's written by a man who was there. A man named General Raymond Davis, Ray Davis, who, first of all, he was a battalion commander in World War II at the Battle of Peleliu, awarded the Navy Cross there for leading his men against overwhelming Japanese fire. And in Korea, he was awarded the Medal of Honor as well as two silver stars, a legion of merit, and a bronze star as the commander 
of 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. And beyond that, he also served as the 3rd Marine Division Commander in Vietnam in 1969, where he was awarded the Navy Distinguished Service Medal and three Republic of Vietnam gallantry crosses. So when he speaks, I think maybe we should listen. And I'm going to start with that forward by General Davis in the book, Colder Than Hell, by Joe Owen. Twice in 1950, during the first months of the Korean War, the United States faced military catastrophe. Both situations occurred because of American errors of diplomacy and faulty intelligence and because our military was not prepared to meet a determined enemy on the battlefield. North Korea and China were the enemies that exploited our failings. On two occasions that year, they caught us by surprise, launching massive attacks first against our ally, South Korea, and then against our own inadequate forces. Both times the consequences were devastating. There were tragic numbers of casualties in the ranks of our soldiers and Marines, and American prestige worldwide was severely impaired. The surprise invasion of South Korea by North Korea with the support of Communist China and the Soviet Union was virtually invited by the United States and the South Koreans. South Korea was vulnerable. Its soldiers were ill-equipped, poorly trained, and improperly deployed. The American forces at that time, victims of Washington politics and false economies, were nearly as bad off. Following the end of World War II drown, drawdown, they were in skeletonized formation, sadly undertrained and inadequately equipped. So there's a little warning for us today. You, you, you need, and somebody, somebody asked me that question. What's your foreign policy? Can you say it in 140 characters? Somebody asked me that on Twitter. I answered it in one word. My foreign policy is strength. This is why. Back to the book. Moreover, our Secretary of State had proclaimed to the world that the Korean Peninsula was outside the area of American vital interests. North Korea, China, and the Soviet Union read that message to mean that the United States would not defend South Korea against outside aggression. South Korea would be theirs for the taking. We now know of messages exchanged between Joseph Stalin and the North Korean president, Kim Il-sung, that explored our weakness and concluded that South Korea could be captured in five days. Subsequently, the North Koreans launched a sudden and massive invasion. Seoul, the North Korean capital, was quickly taken, and soon all that country was overrun except for one small pocket around the port of Pusan. That pocket was formed by American troops. Unready as they were, that President Harry Truman hurried into Korea in response to the crisis. At great sacrifice, these American soldiers with a follow-on brigade of Marines held the Pusan perimeter long enough to allow forces to assemble for an amphibious assault on Incheon behind the North Korean lines. We recaptured Seoul and the North Koreans were put on the run. 
Fearing entrapment, they fled back across their border to the north. American and South Korean troops were joined by soldiers from other United Nations countries and pursued the aggressors deep into North Korea. Our mission was twofold, to punish the North Koreans and to block the Chinese People's Liberation Army if it threatened to enter the war. Because of a failure of intelligence, however, we were far too late to deter the Chinese. They had already positioned vast numbers of their well-trained soldiers in the mountains of North Korea. We were soon under heavy attack, fighting a numerically superior enemy in unfavorable terrain and brutally cold weather. The UN forces, predominantly American, were chased out of North Korea. At the chosen reservoir, where we were outnumbered 10 to 1, the Chinese generals prematurely boasted of the destruction of the 1st Marine Division. Yet the opposite happened there. Although the Marines were forced to withdraw, we destroyed several Chinese divisions as we fought our way to the sea and to escape. Our withdrawal was a successful one, but we paid a terrible price. Casualties reduced the division to nearly half its strength. The three rifle companies of 1st Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, which I was privileged to command, endured losses of even greater proportions. My battalion had been hastily activated in response to President Truman's urgent call to action. It was a thrown-together rifle company, a collection of regulars gathered from Marine Corps posts and stations all over the world, and reservists, mostly untrained who were suddenly called from their homes, jobs, schools, with only a few days of training. They were embarked aboard a ship heading across the Pacific and thrown into combat. They had to learn to fight while under fire. Their saving grace was that they were led by disciplined officers and NCOs who showed them by upfront example how to fight like Marines. Although they suffered casualties that proper preparation would have avoided, they learned well and they hardened into fine rifle company. No North Korean or Chinese force ever stopped them from taking an objective or overcame their position. Let us do all we can to assure that no future generation of young Americans need to go to war unprepared as were those heroes who went to Korea in 1950. And again, that is the foreword of the book, which was written by General Raymond Davis, Medal of Honor winner. And like I said, the book is written by Joe Owen, Joseph Owen, who was Marine Corps officer. And let's continue on. And now we start hearing from Joe Owen. They're at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Nobody at Camp Lejeune had expected a shooting war. We nor we were ready for one. So they're they're there and they're just kind of peacetime peacetime Marines, you know, kind of doing their thing. And all of a sudden, the North Koreans attack. And here they we go. They're all sitting around listening to the radio. A bunch of Marines. 
The announcer continued, more than 2,000 Americans, military advisors, and civilian workers and their families are said to be in the path of North Korean's surprise aggression. Their fate is unknown at this time. American involvement in the new war is not clear. War, yeah! The possibility of American Marines in a combat role excited us. So these guys are young. Not all of them. There's, there's, there's definitely, we're gonna run into many World War II veterans, mm. but the young kids, they don't know. Mm. They wanna get after it, they're, they're fired up. They're so fired up. Back to the book, one story alleged that a commando force of volunteers was forming up for an immediate commitment to battle. That one tied up phone lines on the base as we tried to track down the commando headquarters in order to volunteer. They're all ready to rock and roll. Now, then they start seeing what, what's beginning to occur. They see that we're surrounded. They see that we're kind of getting, the, the North Koreans are getting the best, if not routing. Back to the book, Americans at home were stunned by reports that their army, the conqueror of the mighty Germany and Japan only five years before, was outnumbered, outgunned, and outfought by the upstart North Koreans. General MacArthur called for a full division of Marines to help him turn back the North Koreans. The Marine Corps welcomed the call, but we did not have a full division to put in the field. Like all the services, the Corps had been stripped of men and weapons and ordered to reduce itself to the level of the 1930s. Both the 1st and 2nd Marine Divisions were less than half strength. The Corps would need to draw men from guard detachments, ships, companies, and posts and stations throughout the world. But it still wouldn't find enough troops to fill a division. President Truman thus authorized the Commandant of the Marine Corps to call up the reserves. So it was, again, this is a warning. As a nation and as, a, as an individual human, don't let down your guard. Peacetime will not last. And the weaker you look, the sooner the peacetime will end. Now they get the orders, stand by to ship out. On the Saturday evening before we left Camp Lejeune, Dorothy, so that's Joe's wife, Dorothy hired a babysitter and we went to the officer's club for dinner. There were candles out at our table, which was covered in white linen and set with heavy silverware. The food was delicious and plentiful, and I would think about it often in Korea when my men and I were hungry and cold. That night, Dorothy's hair glistened like gold in the candlelight, and her eyes smiled bright and blue and warm. We danced and laughed with the other lieutenants and their wives. For some of the couples, our closest friends, it was the last night they would ever have together. So they depart Lejeune, and they show up, Camp Pendleton, California, and they get to Camp Pendleton, and he, they, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but Camp Pendleton is a, believe it or not, it's on the coast of California, and there's some pretty aggressive hills in, Calif in Camp Pendleton, which I've spent many nights on, because we would work up there, and uh, they, they, can, they can turn some soft men into some hard men pretty quickly or break 
men if they're too weak. So back to the book. Our ranks were filled by 215 men and seven officers who had never before served together. Half of our enlisted men were infantry-trained regulars. The other half were reservists, most of whom were youngsters who knew, knew little of Marine infantry and its method, methods. Five weeks after we first formed up at Camp Pendleton, we went into the attack against North Korean soldiers who were dug into a hill north of Seoul. And we had spent half of that time on board ship on the way to war. So let me break that down to you. They have five weeks. So five weeks from when they form up, five weeks later, they're attacking North Korean troops. So just FYI, for a SEAL platoon that's going to Iraq, we used to work up for a full year. This is after we went through SEAL training and after we went through SEAL qualification training and after all the guys show up at the team and go to special schools and then you get formed up into a platoon and you have an unbelievable workup to prepare. And, and the Marine Corps does this too. I mean, the Army, everyone does this now. That's the amount of preparation that it takes to prepare for combat. And here are these guys, five weeks of which, what was it? Half that time is spent on a ship just sailing over there. Unbelievable. Back to the book, the sun-scorched hills of Camp Pendleton had over the years toughened the legs and tested the spirits of thousands of America's best fighting men. One of those towering hills loomed across the road from our training site. So again, you want to get tough? Get on some hills with a rucksack on your back. <laughs> that, that will do it to you. And I guess I kind of included those little sections about Camp Pendleton Hills for my own pleasure thinking about those hills. Back to the book. They're going through, the, they're going through this training and they're getting ready to deploy and we'll go back to the book now. Dorothy took $75 of our scant resources and bought an airline ticket from Syracuse to San Diego. Each night after we had dismissed the troops, Bill and I, this is Bill Graber, he's another one of the officers, Bill and I uh, caught a ride to the hotel. Restaurants in the little village of San Clemente were closed that late, but Dorothy would have a cold supper waiting for me. Then we would stroll to the beach and listen to the waves crash across the sand. During those walks, we talked about the babies, and we made plans for my return from Korea. My next assignment, I assured her, would give us at least two years at a good duty station. Maybe I would be senior enough for us to rate decent quarters. In the mornings, early and still dark, Bill Graber and I would grab a ride back to camp with the other officers. Everyone except the driver slept all the way, crowded against each other in the tight seats of the car. We were very tired, but we were young men, and we did dearly love our beautiful wives. And you're going to see throughout this book that even though his wife was not with him, she was with him the whole time. Like many spouses are when guys are deployed overseas. And now they are on board the ship. The ship is getting ready to pull out of the San Diego Bay. Back to the book. The wives remained on the dock long after we had gone aboard. The skirl of bagpipes sounded as we waved to them. PFC Timmy Killeen, Able Company, stood on the fantail of the Okanagan. 
and his bagpipes filled the fading afternoon with the Marine's hymn. Handkerchiefs fluttered from the dock and the ship's horn blasted. We were underway. There were tears, but Marines and Marine wives aren't ashamed of tears when their hymn plays. So now they're heading over to Korea. They're in cramped quarters. I've done a couple uh, deployments on board ships, and there's amphibious ships is what they're called. And these ships were meant to take people overseas. The, the ones that I deployed on were, were what drove us, what drove soldiers to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We used to deploy on those ships for six months. But it's just really cramped. You know, they're basically, they're basically like a cattle car, a giant cattle car, a cattle ship. Mm-hmm. And they just pack everyone on there. It's really tight. And uh, there's not much to do on there. But, you know, you take a bunch of Marines, you put them on a ship, and they figure something out. Back to the book. Staff Sergeant Richard revealed himself to be an all-purpose NCO and an acquisition specialist. One day he produced a set of boxing gloves, and the men of Baker 1-7 immediately became avid pugilists. For three exuberant rounds to the delight of the company, the little bull uh, bifolk, and the little gorilla, Lupacini, engaged in mutual annihilation. When Sergeant Richard clanged his mess gear to end the brawl, the troops and much of the ship's crew were in a cheering frenzy. It had been a grand fight. Both men were covered in blood and bruises, and at the final clang, they wrapped arms and leaned against each other exhausted. My mortar men swarmed into the square, pummeling Bifolk with congratulations. Perkins, who had been holding Bifolk's glasses, placed them carefully over his swollen eyes. I saw Burris then gently guide Bifolk out of the ring. Gene O'Brien, Lupacini's platoon sergeant, followed with his man. And Baker 1-7 was still whistling and cheering when the two fighters and their handlers went through the hatch and down the ladder to sick bay. Joe Kursaba stood next to me. So go, Joe Kursaba is one of the platoon commanders. Stood next to me. This outfit is coming together, he said. Joe rarely smiled, but there was a big grin on his face after that fight. So there's, you, you notice that in these stories about combat, wrestling, fighting, boxing, there is something to it. There is something to it that bonds men together. Fact. Back to the book. When we weren't on deck with the troops, the officers spent the waking hours around the wardroom table. So the wardroom on a ship is where the officers eat. Captain Wilcox. Now, this is the introduction to Captain Wilcox. He's the company commander, and he's a, a vet from Iwo Jima. Captain Wilcox led us in review of the principles and lessons of, the, of rifle company combat. He and Joe Kursaba used their own battle experience as, experience as, as illustration. They focused on the chaos of combat and how the best laid plans always disintegrated under enemy fire. That's why we got to keep our plans simple. War is hell, Captain Wilcox, who had much experience at it, would tell us. But you never know what particular kind of hell it is going to be. We studied the after-actions report that had come from the 5th Marines. The North Koreans 
they had faced were tough, skilled fighters, every bit as tenacious in battle as the Japanese had been in the bitter Pacific Island fighting of the last war. The Red Soldiers, 5th Marines called them gooks, were well trained in the Russian style of combat with effective use of supporting armor, mortars, and artillery. They were men who also were adept at night fighting. Fighting at night was a combat skill we had yet to learn. We would do so under fire and at a terrible cost. So Joe Owen is actually, he's not a platoon commander. He is a, he's the mortar section commander. So in a company of, yeah, call it 200, 200 Marines, there's multiple rifle platoons maybe 40 guys, 50 guys in each one of those rifle platoons. And then there's a little section of mortar guys and mortars are an indirect fire weapon. So for those of you that don't know anything about mortars, mortars shoot rounds. They're, they're, you see them in movies, they're a tube. They're basically a tube and they're at a really high angle and, the, and you drop rounds into it and they fire at a very high altitude and a high angle and then they drop down from straight above and hit targets. And so, so Joe Owen in this company is in charge of the mortar section. Back to the book, when Baker 17 was still on the way to war, the 1st and 5th Marines forced a landing across the tidal flats at Incheon Harbor. The radio in the ship's wardroom was tuned to the tactical net, and we listened to commanders on the beach as they reported the action to their senior echelons and made call for air and artillery support and ammunition resupply. Over the static and crackling transmission, we could hear shells exploding, small arms fire, battlefield curses, and the screams of wounded men. The transmissions were piped out onto the deck where the troops also listened to the grim sounds. I left the wardroom and went out to be with my mortar men. They sat in a tight cluster, staring intently at a loudspeaker as they heard the war that was about to swallow us that's a real introduction right there you're you know you're going to war and you get to listen to guys on the ground in a fierce firefight and hear the shouts and screams of the wounded that's a reality that's a reality check right there for those guys so at this point um owen he he kind of wants to pick up a platoon instead of being the mortar section. He kind of feels like mortar section, you know, they're a little bit in the in the rear and he wants to be a rifle platoon commander. Mm-hmm. If you if you remember what Mac Allen said, the, the last book we did about the Korean War and you know, r- rifle platoon commander, rifle platoon commander, rifle platoon commander, that's what if you're gung ho, that's mm-hmm. what you want to do. And so Joe Owen, he feels kind of like, you know, I wish I was a platoon, I wish I was a rifle platoon commander. That's what I want to do, but he's a mortar section commander. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's fine. Well, he tries to get that job. And he says, he's, he's kind of pressing to get that job up the chain of command. I should have backed off. I plowed on. Sir, the word is that the 1st and 5th Marines are running short on lieutenants. I'd like to request transfer as a replacement. The captain turned to Caney. First Sergeant, if you will excuse us, I'd like a ward alone with Lieutenant Owen. Yes, sir, responded Caney. So he kind of gets rid of the senior enlisted guy. He knew I was about to get reamed, and he smirked at me as he disappeared behind the pile of crates. Captain Wilcox gave me that glare once again. You want to transfer out of Baker 17? 
Sir, it's, the, it's only that I want to put my training to some use before the fighting ends. And to hell with your men. To hell with the company. Is that right, Lieutenant? No, sir, Captain. It's just that, it's just that you want to jump ship on us. The skipper's face glistened with perspiration, and he turned into a steaming red. He had been angry with me before, but never like this. Sir, I... Okay, Lieutenant, here's what you do. You put your request for transfer in writing, and I'll forward it. Approved. No sense holding back a gung-ho, hot-shot second lieutenant. Sir, it's not that I want to leave the outfit. It's just that I, I thought that... Put your request in writing. That's all, Lieutenant. Dismissed. Sir, I... Dismissed! So this is your typical typical little meatball that thinks he's gonna, you know, he's just being gung ho, trying to make something happen. Yeah, it's not a not a good way to be. And you can see that. So that's another thing. You got to think about other people's perspective, right? You got to think about your boss's perspective. Your boss is sitting here trying to get this company together, and then one of his section leaders goes, "Oh, I want to go somewhere else." Right, right. Kind of for himself. What is meatball? Meatball. Oh, sorry. That's just an expression for it's an expression for a new guy in the SEAL teams. Uh, you know, meatball or meat stick or FNG. <laughs> any one of those can be utilized. FNG. So I guess I threw it on on the the new guy here. Yeah, it yeah, it yeah. kind of slipped out. Yeah, man. Oh, oh, good. Now they get on shore, and back to the book. We passed a company of Third Battalion that had been pulled off the line. Its men were sprawled along the road, unshaven and ragged, wearied by days of fighting. So there's another, another little wake-up call. Seeing the guys that are coming off the line. Now they get into a position. This is Baker 6. Move forward. Out. Captain Wilcox ordered when we all reported ready. As we started across the bean field, we were greeted by a fusillade of thwacking sounds, North Korean bullets tearing through the bean plants, thwack, 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 all around us. I kept an eye on my men. They crouched low, but they stayed together and moved ahead. Then the cry, Corman, God, I'm hit, a few feet from me. A Marine from Kaiser's platoon writhed on the ground, his hands clutching his belly. Grayish red intestines pushed through his fingers and blood stained the ground as he thrashed about, screaming in his pain and terror. For the first time, I felt the shivers of dread, the awful fear that comes with combat. I froze. A second. How, how many seconds? Until I once again became aware of the thwacking sounds and the bean plants and I yelled at the men, Move it, you people! Keep moving! They bent lower to the ground as we went forward. The North Korean mortars came. Spouts of earth and black smoke leaped about us, laced with flame and screaming shrapnel. The leaves from bean plants spun in flurries, and the ground shook. I was suddenly in the midst of a frenzied storm of noise. Mortars whistled and crashed. Bullets whined and leaves thwacked. Men shouted prayers and blasphemies. At the far end of the bean field was the dike of a rice paddy. We headed for its cover. A string of mortar shells exploded around us, and a man threw himself to the ground, kicking and screaming, Can't take this! I can't take this! Screeched the fear-stricken Marine, and he curled up himself into a fetal ball. I ran to him and prodded him with the butt of my carbine. On your feet! His head was buried in his arms. Can't take this, he wailed. Get up or I'll shoot you. The sound of the words coming from my mouth was unreal to me. Jesus, don't shoot me, the man whined. T 
tears cut pale streaks through the dust on his cheeks as he stared in horror at my carbine, which was inches from his face. I grabbed the man by his collar and pulled him up to his feet. Move, I yelled. Sergeant Dale from the first platoon ran toward us. I got him, Lieutenant. He's from my platoon, Dale said. So there's fear. And you can see Joe Owen is feeling fear, and he's dealing with it. And this other young Marine is feeling fear, and he's not dealing with it. Then they, they finally get to that dike across the field. Back to the book, I crawled up the dike to peer over the top. Smoke obscured my view, but far ahead and across the road, I detected some movement. The enemy positions were difficult to locate. No flash came from their weapons when they fired. I raised my binoculars. Before I could focus on the target, however, a flurry of bullets pelted the dike and spurts of pebbles and dirt stung my face. I jerked my head back down into cover. Beside me, a rifleman tumbled away from the dike. He made a choking sound and his helmet bounced to the ground. Blood gushed from his head, which suddenly became a wet crimson pulp. Another wave of fear shuddered through me, a massive paralyzing force. Again, I froze, aware only of that blood-drenched face and head. Captain Wilcox voiced, cracked, crackled out of my walkie-talkie. Baker 5, this is 6, come in. The voice snapped me from my paralysis. Baker 6, this is 5, come in 6. I was scrambling back up the dike. I knew the skipper wanted the 60s, the 60s are his mortar, 60 millimeter mortars, to bear on the North Koreans who had us under fire. Get those guns cranked up. Five, over. Roger that six, I said to the radio, on the double. Sergeant Wingett's gun was a few yards away behind the dike and I crawled over to get in front of it. Stand by for HE fire mission, I called to Wingett. Number one gun standing by, HE fire mission, the staunch Wingett called back. With all the will I could muster, I forced my head above the dike, binoculars at the ready. The terror of having my head blown off to a pulp was diminished by fear of losing the respect of my men. So there's a couple things there. You've heard me say you train how you fight. What they go back to is the fundamentals that they practice and trained, and we didn't dive too much in the training. But if you've ever, if you've ever seen Marines uh, in the field with a 60 millimeter mortar, I haven't seen Army guys. I'm sure they're outstanding too. But when you see the Marines setting up a mortar for a fire mission, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And this is exactly what it's like even in, even in the 90s, you know, 40 years after, after the Korean War when I would watch the, the mortarmen set up a mortar to shoot. It was just like that. They'd be, stand by for fire mission. And then, you know, one of the sergeants would call out, number one gun standing by, HE fire mission. You go back to your training and those fundamental basics that you learn, the simple commands, that's what you go back to. That's why you train. That's why you use repetition. Mm -hmm. So when that fear comes up, you go back to what you know. Your instinct becomes, instead of cowering, your instinct becomes to do what you've trained how to do. Mm -hmm. Back to the book, all along the dikes, our Marines were sprawled heads below the edge. The corpsmen had moved their wounded alongside the road waiting for the ambulance jeeps, the meat wagons, to come up. There were two bodies face covered by ponchos. They were Baker 17's first killed in action, the KIA. So Baker's, Baker's the company that they're in. The, you, that's why they keep referring to Baker 17, 1st Battalion, Baker Company. 
back to the book. Someone said, won't be nothing left up there by the time the ar- artillery gets it. So what's going on here is they call in some some big guns, some big, so a 60 millimeter mortar is small, and then when you start calling in howitzers, big giant bombs are coming from the sky. Uh, that's what, so they call some of those in. And you know you're sitting. They're sitting there watching the mountain where these where these North Koreans are, and they're seeing massive explosions. And so now, back to the book. Someone said, "Won't be nothing left of them up there by the time that artillery lets up." Staff Sergeant Richard, the company armorer, was crouched near us. "Don't fool yourself," he said. "Artillery never wipes out the gooks, softens them up, and keeps their head down. But they'll be there waiting when the guns let up." This is another lesson we learned a lot about. You know, you think, you think that no one could survive something, and they do survive it. You know, we we used to when we were running training, we had the the Humvees would be shooting blanks. It's training, so the Humvees would be big fifty caliber machine guns, and they'd shoot blanks into a building, and then the guys in the building would come and shoot back at them. And the guys going through the training, the seals would be like, oh, you know, we we shot a bunch of fifty cal in there. Those guys wouldn't be alive. Mm. And you know, I would say, no, actually, they will be alive. They will be alive because mm. I've seen it. And those fifty cal's, they're an awesome weapon. But there's a guy two rooms deep inside that building. You can shoot all those rounds in there. He's going to be okay. And as mm. soon as you let up, he's going to be there shooting back at you. And it's the same thing with obviously with the big artillery and the North Koreans are dug in. I scrambled to my feet, keep moving. The men were all up and they ran after me, bent under the weight of their guns and ammo. Get us the hell out of here, someone cried. And so what do they do? They attack. So when you're pinned down, it's just another example, when you're pinned down, attack. And here's what it looks like. Back to the book, two of Kaiser squads moved up in short bounds while a third laid a base of fire. Cover move. You're going to see cover move all throughout this book. And every time we bring it up, I'm going to mention it because I want to make sure everyone that's listening, those, those folks that are in the military, you hear it every single time. This is the first one of many. Two of Kaiser squads moved up in short bounds while a third laid a base of fire. The first 50 yards went easily. Then the North Koreans popped out of cover and took us under fire. Suddenly the ground before us was scathed with torrents of bullets. Mortar shells whistled in and exploded along Kaiser's line. Corpsmen! Corpsmen! So if you don't know, a corpsman is, is a medic in the, in the Army. It's a medic in the Navy. It's called a corpsman. And Navy corpsmen are the ones that go and deploy with the Marine Corps as medics. So that's when you hear those, those corpsmen calls. That's what it is. Corpsmen! Corpsmen! Came a despairing wail. Ed Topple lurched up from prone position and ran toward the wounded man as enemy bullets spurted around him. Beside me, another man went down with a grunt and did not move. Fear slammed my gut once more and I was flat on the deck. Nichols was down there with me. What do you want to do, Lieutenant? Nichols' plump young face streaked with dirt and sweat showed the same fear that had me in its terrible grip. Jesus, the boy depends on me. I forced my head up. That's a classic. What do you want to do, Lieutenant? I was, I I think I might have talked about this, but I was in, when I was in Sri Lanka and I was a young kid and there was all those guys that were hardcore combat veterans. And one of the captains, army captains, Again, Sri Lankan Army captain who'd been in t- t- 
tons of combat. And I was talking to him, I was trying to like garner information about war because I hadn't been in any and he'd been in a ton. He was wounded and shrapnel on his face. And I'm talking to him, you know, about it. And he said, you know, when you're in a war, he goes, it's pretty easy to take care of yourself. You can take care of yourself. Like he said, if I was in a war, if I, when we were in a firefight, if I just had to take care of myself, I'd be okay. But when you're in charge of everyone, it's totally different. And now all of a sudden, you got people saying, what do you want us to do, Lieutenant? And that's the pressure, which I, I will never forget him telling me that story. And that's a great example of it right there. Sure, he's scared. He's scared. But he's got a mortar section waiting for them to t- waiting for him to tell him what to do. To save them. Now we get introduced to a guy named Lieutenant Lee, who's a, a Chinese-American guy. Very by the book and very hardcore. You're going to hear plenty about Lieutenant Lee here. Lieutenant Lee came upon Baldwin's gun. Sir, I think we should move this gun, Baldwin said to his lieutenant. It's kicking up dust. You have a good position here, Baldwin, responded Lieutenant Lee. I'll show you how to handle the dust problem. Lee opened up his canteen and walked around the machine gun, sprinkling precious water as he went. Now fire off a burst, ordered Lee. The machine gun fired but raised no dust. Lieutenant Lee walked on up the hill, ignoring enemy bullets that hit around him. (laughs) Moving forward a little bit. Hey, Lee, called Bifolk. Get down. We're getting shot at. Bifolk had Lieutenant Lee's attention. The lieutenant dashed to where Bifolk was hugging the ground. You address me as Lee, he asked, standing over the astonished young Marine. Jesus, yeah, get down, you're drawing fire. You, on your feet, demanded Lee. Bullets zipped through the air, punctuating the bizarre scene of a lieutenant bracing a PFC to attention in the midst of a firefight. You call me Lieutenant Lee, or sir. You understand that, Marine? Yes, 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 sir, stammered Bifolk wishing that he were in a very deep foxhole. And you never forget that, understand? Now carry on, said the lieutenant, and he proceeded to walk further up the hill, seemingly oblivious to the enemy fire. What the hell, thought Bifolk. And he got up to walk behind Lee. The rest of the mortar squad arose and followed. So like I said, Lee is by the book. And that's an extreme example. I don't think I necessarily agree with that example either. But Lee's going to hold the line. And maybe there was much danger as, uh, as he thought. But instilling that discipline, he's given no slack. Back to the book. While the mortars obscured the enemy's view, Van Winkle moved his people up. So you got the mortars dropping fire. And that allows Van Winkle to move his people. That's called cover and move, by the way. Nearing the top of the ravine, Hank Kaiser positioned his assault squad to follow a barrage of grenades into the enemy positions as soon as the mortars lifted. So you got three situations. You got the mortars are going in. That's the first cover. Then once the mortars lift, they're going to throw grenades. That's your second cover. The ammo carriers for the Marine machine guns filled in with riflemen on the line of assault ready to charge up the last few yards of ground. Lee was with them, bayonet fixed to the top of his carbine. The mortars fired, fired a final barrage. Their explosions were followed by the sharper impact of grenades thrown at enemy holes. Shouts and war cries swelled from charging Marines who leaped, bayonets pointed into the enemy positions that were dug in along the face of the ridge. 
Some of the North Koreans stood to fight, their bayonets also fixed, but they were cut down. Others scurried over the hill, many were shot from behind as they tried to escape. We all knew it had been a far from perfect exercise. Some of the men had been slow to respond to direction. Not all of our orders were clear enough for quick and effective fire and movement. We were fortunate that the enemy had not chosen a fight to the death defense of this hill as they would have advanced, as they would when we advanced further north. So think about this point. Not all of our orders were clear enough for quick and effective fire and movement. He's not even blaming the guys. He knows that the mistake was that they weren't being simple, clear, concise with their orders. And that makes everything lag. Back to the book, when we had nearly reached the top, Captain Wilcox pushed Weaver's platoon through Kaiser's for the final assault. Platoon Sergeant King led the charge, and we could hear his piercing rebel yells all over the hill. Once again, it was a ragged performance. Orders confused in the hellish noise, men who bunched close together, and some who hesitated to risk the move against enemy fire. However clumsy we were, though, we had the fundamentals right. The NCOs directed their sectors of fire. The fire teams went forward in bounds, covering each other as they progressed, and our machine gun and mortar fire stayed ahead of the advance and kept the enemy heads down. That's the that's what that's what small unit tactics are. It's cover and move, cover and move, cover and move. Now they're digging in some some night defenses, and because they're these peaks, I mean this huge mountainous terrain, steep cliffs, they end up disaggregated across the battlefield. So they're not they're not right next to each other because there's valleys between them. Hmm. Back to the book, we had, we had to set our own isolated perimeters and we couldn't tie our flanks to the other companies for mutual support. The same held true for attack. Almost always the battalion was channeled, channeled into attacking some with one company, one hill at a time. This sort of isolated fighting made it difficult to communicate with battalion and other companies. That problem was not solved much of the time we company level officers were on our own initiative decentralized command just decentralized command so imagine this you can't talk to battalion there's a hill that cuts your radio signal you have to be you have to know what the intent is of the operation and you have to be out there ready to ready to execute on your own to the best of your ability underneath the commander's intent back to the book i learned how to deflect the fear after the first jolt of it, which came with the initial shock of coming under fire, I would force myself upright and attempt to read the situation before the skipper's voice came crackling out of the walkie-talkie. Once I had rammed myself into action, the fear subsided. It never completely went away though. So people ask this all the time, how are we gonna overcome fear? And what did he do to overcome fear? He forced himself into action. Didn't wait. You start feeling that fear, go. Go, get up, take a look at that situation, try and analyze it. And in, in his own clock, what he made for himself, the timer that he made for himself was I'm gonna, I'm gonna assess the situation before the boss calls me. Mm-hmm. So that's the timer he put on himself. That, that forced him into action. 
So we say this over and over again. You're afraid of something? Step into it. Take action. Don't wait. Back to the book. There was no deflecting the confusion that came with every firefight. Bewildering patterns of noise and grotesque scenes exploded all around. Men screamed in rage and pain and fear. Swarms of bullets whined and splattered close by. The mortars blasted, hurled flames and slices of steel and raised clouds of greasy black smoke. Despairing voices yelled, Corman, and someone would surely call, What do we do, Lieutenant? In the turmoil, the officers and sergeants made themselves visible, and we shouted orders. Watch your sector, or move up, or bear on me, or gook machine gun 10 o'clock, 300 yards. We subdued the fear and showed the men that we were in command. And I've talked about this one before too. I talk all the time about, oh, you gotta explain to everybody why, you gotta explain to why, you want everyone to be, you want people to form the plan with you and you want it to be their plan, you want them to take ownership. And then I also say that when you have a critical situation, you have to lead. And that's what he's talking about right here. You have to lead. And that's what they do. They would give these to orders, simple, clear, direct orders of what to do in this situation and show the men that they were in command. Back to the book, we could have alleviated some of the confusion if our walkie-talkies had worked as advertised. The handheld two-way radios were supposed to transmit and receive up to a mile in distance. We found that they rarely functioned over 100 yards, never over uneven terrain. We carried them because they were all we had, but we had little faith in them. Instead, just like frontline military leadership throughout history, we relied on line of sight communications, arm and hand signals, and we sent runners back and forth. In those first five days of combat, I learned to stay visible, and I learned the value of a good runner. The North Koreans used whistles and bugles for battlefield command, more effective by far than our walkie-talkies. And I'm a huge proponent of verbal commands. And you know, I think Leif's told this story a bunch of times where I was telling him, you know, you use, he's, he's trying to tell his guys what to do over the radio and I said, hey Leif, give him verbal commands. Mm-hmm. And because when guys are, when, when, you're, when you're working, mm-hmm. there's this weird, there's everyone talking on the radio and it turns into white noise. Mm-hmm. And so they're not responding. But when you give a verbal command, in the SEAL teams, in the military, you get trained that if I tell Echo, peel right, you're gonna, when you hear that, your instinct and your training tells you to repeat that command. So you're gonna repeat it to the next person. When they hear it, they're gonna repeat it. So everyone repeats the verbal command. Mm. So when you say verbal command, that's like off it's, the radio. It's like, yeah, it's yelling. You yeah, gotcha. it's yelling. It's yelling. Gotcha. It's, it's talking, but in, in all actuality, it's yelling. Yeah. It's yelling. And so the the radios just sometimes, you know, and our, our radios are, uh, infinitely better than these radios and even while I was in the radios made vast improvements and by the by the time I retired the radios were pretty damn good mm. but there are times if the radio is not working you got to go with the verbal commands and you that's why you got to train you got to train for the verbal train without radios a bunch mm. I always tell guys yeah take the radios off make sure you can do it without the radios how's it going to go if the communication net goes down you got to have that backup communication plan all the time mm-hmm.
now here we are in another another firefight this is basically a massive book of firefights back to the book the North Koreans disappeared into the deep ditch that ran along the other side of the road they were moving in our direction and we dove for the our own ditch grenades flew toward us but landed wide there was a machine gun up ahead however I couldn't locate it and it started and it started to fire down on us I tossed two grenades in the ditch where the North Koreans were concealed and told Burris to have his men crawl up Call, crawl over a clump of boulders 20 paces away. When the squad and its mortar were in, I told Nicholas to go for it. We were crouched together, but, Nichol, but as Nichols turned to crawl away, a bullet speared his chest and threw him backward against him, against me. His blood spattered my dungarees. The boy made a terrible rattling sound and then was still, his teenage face expressionless. Burris watched, horrified, and I waved him back when he began to crawl towards us. Then I took a deep breath, pressed myself flat to the ground, and crept rapidly away from the ditch. I left Nichols behind me, where he had died. Harsh firefights and... They, they, they wrap up this. They keep taking their objectives. They're taking a lot of casualties. And this section here is after the fight is over. Back to the book. We grew silent thinking of our families. I took the snapshots from the webbing inside my helmet and remembered their images one by one. Then I thought about the day's next mission and reviewed the fighting we had done that day. I tried to blank out the blood screams men killing each other and dying, the ground exploding, bursts of flame and stabbing tracers, the hot smell of weapons at full automatic, the stench of guts and feces oozing from a dead marine, and the shuddering fear. And... They continue pushing, they're pushing north, and they're on one of these patrols heading north, and we'll go back to the book. Through my binoculars, I saw a bearded old Korean emerge from one of the huts. Papasan, we called these grandpas who wore traditional garb of high black top hat and flowing white robes. The old fellow stood before his doorway watching bewildered as weapons-laden marines passed through his village. Crack! went Brainick's carbine, only a few inches from me, and the old man fell to the ground. The tall black hat fell beside him. Got the bastard! exclaimed Brainick. His carbine was still up, searching for another target. Goddamn fool! I yelled, astonished at the murderous act. Without thought, I slammed the butt of my own carbine into Brainick's ribs. Brainick screamed with pain and went down to the ground, writhing. I stood over him, poised to deliver another butt stroke. Goddamn fool! I screamed again as Wright came from behind me and held my arms. Wing it was with Wright and pulled my carbine away. Hold it, Lieutenant! Wright shouted in my ear. Hold it! What the hell happened? You see what he did? I screamed. I'll kill the... Doktorsky, the corpsman, was already kneeling beside Brainick. He snapped a shred of morphine and jabbed Brainick's arm. 
I endeavored to control myself. Deep breaths. Okay, Sergeant, I said, and Wright released his hold. The men were circling, looking from me to Brainick. They were silent. God damn it. He shot that old man for nothing, I yelled. Through the pain, Brainick groaned. I thought he was a goddamn gook. I thought he had a weapon. Any of you seen what happened? Winget asked the men. No one responded. No witnesses, Wright said softly to me. Whatever happened, nobody saw anything. The realization hit me. No one except me had witnessed Brainick shooting that old man. But if someone had seen me hit Brainick, I could be subject to a court-martial for striking an enlisted man. No witnesses, Wright said again. No one saw anything. This stays in the mortars, I heard someone say. Meaning, we're just going to keep this amongst ourselves. Yeah, someone else responded. This stays with us. There was a murmur of assent. Shall I move them out, Lieutenant Wright asked? Yeah, Sergeant, I answered numbly. Move them out. The morphine had not yet taken its effect on Brainick. He ground his teeth together to hold back cries of pain, and he was scared. I bent over him and said, You know, you and I know what happened, Brainick, and you're going to have to live with it. Brainick nodded his head. He said nothing but blinked his tear-filled eyes and nodded his head. Take care of him, Doc. Then I went to catch up with the mortarmen. When I walked past the old man's hut, a circle of women and children surrounded the body, crying their sorrow. An old woman caught my eye. I'm sorry, I said, although she wouldn't understand my words. We're all very sorry. It's madness. And again, you young military leaders out there, you gotta watch your people and you gotta give them good commander's intent. They gotta understand. They gotta understand what's right and what's wrong and that's gonna come from you. Now, at this point in the book, and again, obviously I'm not reading the entire book, but you all should so you can capture everything that's in between. But I'm jumping forward a little bit here. They get relieved by the army. They move to the rear. And they start getting word on what they're going to be doing. Back to the book. Under the glare of the lantern, Captain Wilcox spread a map on the hood. And we jostled for a view. Maps of this part of the world were scarce. This is the first one we had seen of the country beyond Ham Hung. It was a topographic chart made by the Japanese during their occupation of Korea. The characters and language on the map were Japanese. Place names and legends had no meaning for us. But we could read the physical features and the contour lines. The terrain they showed was a military nightmare. Roadblock and ambush territory. It was a country of high, steep hills, deep valleys, and sharp ridgelines. The lower elevations were largely forested. Settlements were sparse, and the few roads twisted snake-like through tight passes and along riverbeds. At the northern extremity of the map, at the end of 70 miles of a narrow corkscrew roadway, was a meandering blue dot. That was the chosen reservoir. The Chinese have committed themselves to this war, began Captain Wilcox. They are in force. They are slicing through the Republic of North Korea's army up north like a hot knife through butter. 
up here. He used his bayonet as a pointer to indicate the Chinese advance. The people we will fight are the 124th Division of the regular Chinese Army. Definite and confirmed, no matter what Tokyo wants to believe. So the military command was in Japan. They weren't in Korea. The military was the military command. The generals were over in Tokyo. So he's saying no matter what Tokyo wants to believe, this is who we're fighting. Back to the book. They're tough, well-trained soldiers, 10,000 of them. And all of their officers are combat experienced their very best. After the briefing, I requested a word alone with Captain Wilcox to ask him if we could leave Sergeant Wright. So Sergeant Wright, you've heard his name mentioned a few times. He was the senior enlisted guy working directly for Captain for uh, Lieutenant Owen. And it's, he's, it's actually time for him to go home. I requested a word alone with Captain Wilcox to ask him if we could leave Sergeant Wright behind with the comp- when the company moved out. Sergeant White has done a good job for us, but he's a short timer just waiting for paperwork, I offered. Furthermore, sir, it's not good for the troops to see him with his morale down. I'd like to replace him with Sergeant Wingette before we hit anything serious up ahead. Good idea, the captain said, except it's too late. Battalion says we mount out as we are. I'm not about to snarl up with them on a transfer detail right now. You tell Sergeant Wright that I'm sorry, we can't do anything for him. Aye, aye, sir. So that was a little opportunity for Sergeant Wright to get out of there. But it didn't work out. And now, just talking about kind of the morale of the troops, back to the book. There was a great energy in the ranks. Strong, healthy young men on the way to adventure. We cleaned and recleaned weapons and earnestly sharpened our bayonets and fighting knives. The old salts retold stories of Japanese ferocity on the Pacific Islands. Others remembered pitched battle with Chinese bandits along with the pleasures of the North China occupation. The newly blooded veterans of last month's fight boasted to the replacements about their triumphs over the stubborn North Koreans. All hands speculated about whether the quality of the Chinese army would be equal to that of the North Koreans we had beaten down south. The fear that settles in the gut before combat had not yet surfaced. On that crisp morning, with our clean-shaven faces, clean dungarees, squared-away gear, full canteens, full bellies, and full issue of ammunition, the Marines of Baker 1-7 feared no one. They start heading up north, and one of the colonels is out. Colonel Litzenberg was there. He stood beside the road as we passed, nodding and smiling at his fighters. You're looking good, Marine. You're looking good, Marine, he kept saying. And all the men waved and smiled back at him. The veterans from down south recognized, all recognized old Homer. They had seen him frequently up on the line. Good hunting, Owen. Good hunting, young man, he called to me as I passed by. Now, he has that opportunity now to maybe figure out a way out for Wright, who had the opportunity to go away. While the men were loading up on ammo, I talked to Sergeant Wright. No sense for you to go up, I told him. Your orders could come down from battalion any time now. Stay here with the gunny. I appreciate that, Lieutenant, responded Sergeant Wright, but I do want to stay with the mortars. If it's okay with you, that's what I'll do. I nodded. It's okay with me, Sergeant. 
I just don't want you wasting time getting back to your kids. He said stiffly, I'll stay with the section, sir. He didn't like my favoring him. He went back to the mortarmen and told them to get ready to move out. I'm telling you, there's a, there's a certain bond. There's a certain bond. And obviously in this case, it's a bond that's even stronger than the bond he has with his kids. It is the bond that he knows his, his brothers in arms are going into harm's way, and he's going with them no matter what. So now we get uh, Baker 1-7. They're, they're dug into some positions. They've moved, and now they're dug into some positions. Back to the book. In the brush below Kaiser's platoon, Chinese assault squads waited in disciplined silence for the rockets and bugles that would signal them to attack. Their quilted uniforms kept them from shivering in the chill night. They already knew in detail how Kaiser's defenses were set up and the location of each forward hole and our weapons. During the late afternoon, their officers had watched Baker 1-7 dig in and they knew our line as well as we did. Under cover of darkness, the assault teams had crept soundlessly into their jump-off positions within grenade range of the Marine line. These soldiers were honored that they would be the first Chinese to attack American Marines. So these guys are staged and ready, and here we go. The sound of a rocket ripping through the air close above us jolted me awake and brought me upright in our hole. Kelly was with me. A streak of fluorescent green crossed our line, followed by a red rocket from the other direction. Bugles blared and whistles shrilled down the Sudong Valley. The luminous hands of my watch said 0030. Baker 17 was under attack. A sudden clamor erupted from Hank Kaiser's side of the hill. The eerie chant, Malene, die! Malene, die! issuing from a chorus of Chinese voices, then the crash of mortars, the boom of concussion of grenades, and the sharp sputter of burp guns. Seconds later, there was the deeper sound of answering marine rifles and bars, joined by the pounding of our machine guns and the explosion of marine grenades. The screams of wounded men soon added to the melange of sounds, along with profanities of rage in both languages. Fast forward a little bit, Chinese grenades exploded into the line and their burp guns blazed. The first wave of enemy soldiers rushed in and forward holes were buried in mounds of quilted uniforms. Clubbing and stabbing, the Chinese surged up the third platoon's hill. Behind them were left dead Marines and wounded men who cried for the help of their corpsmen. And one of the things that they talk about in here is one of the tactics that the Chinese used is not everyone would even carry a weapon when they would attack. And if you were a guy that wasn't carrying a weapon, you would go attack. And then as soon as someone got shot, you would take their weapon and carry on. Dang. So that's how, that's how many people they had, number one. They also didn't have, you know, a weapon for every guy. Obviously, they would have given them. But they also said, you know what? Here's the plan. But then think about how now light you are. You're not even carrying a weapon. You're not even carrying any ammunition or anything. You're mm -hmm. just you're just able to travel. And it's it's hard for people that were never have never put on gear. Mm -hmm. It burdens you down so much. It just makes you slower. And you get used to it, sure. 
But when you you can get as used to it as you want. When you take it off, you feel like Superman. <laughs> yeah. So these these Koreans are are the sorry the Chinese are feeling like Superman sneaking up into these positions all quiet. They also had real legit winter gear. At least this group we're gonna run into some groups that didn't have it, but they got these nice quilted uh, uh, uniforms and jackets. So that's they they're just bringing it. Mm. They're bringing it. Back to the book. Van Winkle readied the Marines near him for the next Chinese attack, putting his people into recaptured fighting holes. The men stacked Chinese bodies in front of their holes for greater protection. Somebody yelled to Van Winkle that his own shoulder was bleeding. The big sergeant felt his arm and found a Chinese bullet had indeed passed through his shoulder. He didn't care. Nobody... Near, sorry, nearby, a man on the ground, sobbing and shaking. My buddy, my buddy, Gooks shot his head clean off. The orange glare of a Chinese grenade illuminated the sobbing Marine. Van Winkle crawled over to the man, grasped his arm, saying, Come on, kid, come with me. You'll be all right. He rose from the ground and pulled the kid up with him. Leadership. Going forward a little bit, Archie Van Winkle now found himself on the lower fringes of the Chinese attack. He ignored his wounded shoulder and fired his carbine one-handed. He called for nearby Marines to follow and launched his own attack into the flank of the Chinese who were moving up towards Kaiser. So you got a guy who's wounded, just picking up young Marines, getting them back in the game, firing his rifle with one hand and leading leading an attack on the flank of the Chinese that are attacking his buddy. Higher up the hill, Gunny Foster brought Sherman Richter's two machine guns from 1st Platoon and they commenced pounding down Kaiser's slope. Withering fire and exploding grenades now from both flanks and above stymied the Chinese attack. There was a series of whistle signals and the attackers fell back. They crawled over their dead but pulled their wounded with them as they backed down to the bottom of the hill and into the woods. They were supported by well-directed covering fire, and they held good order as they withdrew. When the Chinese were finally off the hill, the Marines ceased their fire, and both Marines went silent. So the Chinese are also doing cover and move as they, even as they leave, as they withdraw. They, they're, they're in another little firefight. And Owen's trying to quickly get his mortar up, and they drop a they drop a mortar round. The way a mortar works, you drop the mortar into the, the round into the tube, and it fires. Mm-hmm. If there's a misfire, it's really it's a scary situation because so if the, if you drop the mortar into the tube mm-hmm. and it doesn't come out, it doesn't mm-hmm. shoot. Well, now you've got a live round. Yeah. inside the mortar tube so you have to literally pick up the tube and let gravity pull like let the let the mortar round slide out and you put your hands there to catch it yeah wait not, why does it explode it's not a, like a timer or nothing it's no like, it's like yeah, it's, it's, it's got a little detonator yeah. that makes it shoot and you got little propellant um around the fin that makes you go know, different ranges yeah, yeah but essentially you drop this thing in there and it's supposed to shoot out yeah. and it when it doesn't it's a scary situation because now you got a live round inside your mortar tube, and in order to get it out, you 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 just lift the mortar tube up and you kind of pour, pour it out it into up. your hands. Yeah. So 
they get a dud round, and there's a bunch of things that can call it, cause a dud round. Mm-hmm. Some of it can be you know, a bad batch of ammunition, but that's what's going on here. They get a dud round. Dud round, try another one, I told Wing. Again, they're trying to get some mortars downrange, so they're under panic situation, and they're getting shot at, by the way, too. Dud round, try another one, I told Winget. Kelly yelled for us to hurry up. Winget asked me to wait while he checked the tube for an obstruction. He grabbed a long stick, which he shoved into the tube. He pulled out a cleaning rag, the cause of our misfire. It was, it was careless that we had not checked the tube for an obstruction before we fired. Winget said, I won't tell anybody about this if you don't. And he says, shut up, damn it. I yelled at him. And this is the reason I highlighted this, because he said, my fear showed itself in anger. Mm. And I think that's an important thing to think about. We all know, we all know when someone's getting mad that that they're probably afraid, right? They're afraid of something. That's So we all see that. So if you're in a leadership position mm-hmm. and you start losing your temper, it's, it's very visible everywhere that you're just scared. Yeah, you might be also frustrated, but it's showing you what it's showing is that you're losing control of your emotions mm-hmm. And that's why we can't do that in leadership positions. You can't do that. That's why it's so much infinitely better to remain calm Yeah, when uh, Frustration like all this stuff. so if you go into a situation where, where you're scared, you know so a lot of times, especially if you're like a, an alpha type person or a powerful person you go and you feel that fear it's basically the fear kind of is this feeling of, of weakness. So you, a natural tendency, this goes for pretty much everybody. Overcompensate. Yeah, is to, is to bounce back. So so you your natural way to invoke power is a, like this anger, aggression type attitude. So when, you know, leaders or whatever, when they feel that fear, it's like, oh, my powerless. It's like a subconscious thing. I'm powerless right now. So I got I got to fight back. So it comes anger yep. in this point and and the thing is what you just said we all humans know that instinctively yeah, so when you see a leader start to act like yeah. that it becomes very clear yeah, yeah. that there's some emotion there some fear some frustration some anxiety yeah and that's gonna spread by the way if i start panicking and start getting crazy echo you got to get this done you know i'm scared so now you're saying wait if jocko's scared yeah. i'm scared too yeah. and now we start having issues So try and remain calm is the is the basic principle. So they get done with that particular firefight, and we got a little debrief here on it. Back to the book. Baker 1-7 lost more men that night than we had in the first five days of our campaign against the North Koreans. Captain Wilcox raised hell when he heard Sergeant Dale and his men had been killed in their sleeping bags. I didn't cover this section, but one of the one of the small elements, they were in their sleeping bags, got overrun and killed. So Captain Wilcox raised hell when he heard that Sergeant Dale and his men had been killed in their sleeping bags. He made it standard operating procedure that the company stayed out of sleeping bags at night and when we were on the line. Tell your people that they can put their feet in the bags and loosen their boondockers that's as far as they go, he told us. From then on, no matter how cold it became, we slept outside of our bags and our boots only came off to change socks. Now, I, I didn't cover this part where this happens, but one of these guys, Sergeant Lunny, he, he, had, he, had, he had taken a patrol to another area in one of the mortars 
and when he went, they got lost. And then when they got lost, they got overrun, and instead of fighting or doing anything, they just all ran. They just all ran in different directions. Now, actually, all of them lived. Miracle, all of them lived. I shouldn't say they got overrun, but fighting broke out, and instead of doing something organized, they just all took off. And so, so Sergeant Lunny, he's, they come back and they say, what, you know, uh, Owen says, hey, what happened out there? And they said, Sergeant Lunny just, you know, basically said every man for himself. <laughs> Dang. And so he's about to get relieved of his command, which yeah. means you got fired in the military. Dang. Back to the book. Sergeant Lunny, I'm relieving you of your squad. He looks straight ahead, but his eyes moistened. You let your men down last night. You abandoned your responsibilities. It's only good luck that the squad wasn't wiped out. They could all be dead or taken prisoner. Lunny's voice trembled. Lieutenant, it was pitch black down there. We were lost. I used my best judgment. I can understand getting lost, I said. But you set no security. When the Chinese came through, you forgot to take you forgot your men to take care of yourself. Lieutenant, I panicked. I admit that. But if you give me another chance, tears streamed down his cheeks and he looked to the ground. I can't give you another chance. Your men don't respect you. You report to the CP. They'll give you orders from there. His head bowed. Sergeant Lunny said, I'm sorry, sir. I'm very sorry. I'm sorry too, Sergeant. Dismissed. Sergeant Lunny walked back to the section perimeter gathered his gear, then trudged uphill to the CP. No one said goodbye to him. I felt sorry for the man, and I couldn't forget the times that fear had taken me close to the edge of panic, too. And that's why I included that, because Owen was going through all kinds of fearful situations. He knows that he's been close to that edge, but he doesn't cross the line. He holds the line, and that's the difference. Now, they're pressing forward. Again, this entire book is them either pressing forward or you're going to see quickly that it, it becomes them trying to leave once they're surrounded. Back to the book. Baker 17 took point and marched for more than an hour without any sign of the Chinese. A single file of each of us on the side of the road, the men moving easily. So they're pushing forward and nothing's happening all of a sudden. Don't like this one damn bit, Lieutenant Owen, O'Brien said to me. He was a reservist combat experienced from the Pacific War. It isn't natural for the gooks to let us move up this easy. We're walking into their trap. All I know is that MacArthur says the 1st Marine Division is going to go for the Yalu, Yalu River. I said the Yalu River was North Korea's border with China. So they've been ordered, hey, you're going to the Yalu River. And pretty much they're all saying at this point, they all kind of feel like it's a trap. But they're walking. They're not getting any resistance. Back to the book, the troops were in good humor. They joked and laughed as we marched and made obscene comments about the things that were central to their lives. The chow, the terrain, the enemy, the lack of women. Second thing I'm going to do when I see my wife again is take off my pack, said one of the married reservists in the column. 
Oh yeah, came the answer. By the time you see her again, you'll forget what the first thing was. Hell, it'll be so long before we get back stateside, you'll be too old for that stuff. Someone else joked to the married man who is nearly 30 years old. I'm telling you, guys keep up the good spirits and that is that is it's impossible you know i gotta include this because i always had fun on deployments i was saying this the other day we laughed out loud like once a day in iraq laughed out loud hysterically at something so the the for those of you that are civilians or don't have any comprehension of this kind of thing guys that are in the military they have a good time even in the worst situations, mm. they're having, we have fun. You have to. Mm. And you know, you can apply that to your job, to your job when things get stressful, when things start getting hard. As a leader, if you're just bearing more stress on everybody, it's not gonna help. One of the best ways to alleviate stress is to have some fun, and that's exactly what's going on here. The guys are on patrol, okay, we're not getting shot at, so guess what? Let's bust this guy's ass about missing his wife. No problem, that alleviates some of that stress. You don't need to just bear down and create more stress on your people. Mm. I've been asked that. A couple of people have asked me that on social media. Can you talk? Can you tell us about you know humor in uh, as a leader? When do you use humor? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We always have fun, and you know, there's obviously a time to be serious, but there's plenty of time when you're gonna joke around and have fun and poke fun at each other all the time. Yeah, do you ever run into like situations where you know some people they just joke more than other people yeah, yeah. and then there's a, you know the opposite guys joke less. You ever run into a situation where you are serious and then someone's like trying to make jokes, you know? And and it does get annoying or in the way of mm, I don't know that people when when I'm serious, I don't get a lot of jokesters in the game. <laughs> <laughs> I I I'm just I'm, I'm saying no most kidding. of the time, mm. when when I'm when I mean and I, and I think I think there's a pretty I mean, maybe that happens in, in you know in a school setting, you yeah. know, or or I guess in a business setting it could happen. But if you got a if you got a good team that works a lot together, people know when you it's know. serious yeah, and it's yeah, when, yeah. when it's sense. not, you know. Yeah. And I, and once you tell a joke or you crack a wisecrack and nobody laughs and you just get a look from people going, "Hey, man, shut up." That's yeah. it, you know. So maybe I've maybe that's happened to me a dozen times in my career right, where right. somebody said something. It's you know everyone just said, "Okay, we're, we're you know enough," and yeah. everybody feels it. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine too working that close with important tasks like that important. People are pretty going to be pretty much in tune with the the comedy it, dynamic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now I had a guy that I I worked with when I was the admiral's aide, and he he and I he was older than me. He was actually retired captain. He's one of my favorite guys. But I was the admiral's aide, so I was a young you know a young lieutenant, and he was a retired captain. Mm-hmm. And we would go back and forth all day long regardless of what the situation was, we would never say a serious thing to each other the entire day for months on end. Nothing, everything yeah. was a sarcastic yeah, kind yeah. of comment to each other. And it made a, a pretty 
a pretty miserable job of being the admiral's aide. It's not a fun job. It made it like we, we just had a good time. So yeah. so once again, we're even in a situation where, hey, I'm in a uniform in an office all day from six o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night, every mm-hmm. day, day on day. You know, in the military and in, in the civilian world, when you come back from a trip from somewhere, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, you, oh, you were on a trip. Hey, you know, don't come in tomorrow morning. You know, you come in a little bit late because you got back at midnight. Mm-hmm. You're, you're admiral's aide. No, you're coming, you're coming in at six. That's the way it is. There's no, there's no break. Oh, you haven't seen your family in two weeks? That's cool. We'll see you at six o'clock in the morning tomorrow. Oh, you want to take your daughter to school? No, not happening. Good. So it's like yeah. that. And yet, yeah. what, I had this one guy that I work with who I, we, we just we just never said anything yeah. serious to each other and always kept it light and fun. And that's that was pretty awesome. Was that, do you, th- I mean, thinking back, do you think that that was on purpose? Or did it just kind of shake itself out like it that? It just you shook know? itself out. You yeah. know, we just had funny, uh, uh, the way our, our relationship yeah. was, was we were just two guys yeah. that liked to give each other a hard time about yeah. stuff and set each other up for stuff. And just, just yeah. we both knew. I mean, he was under a stressful job as well. You know, he's got he's got a lot of pressure on him. And so what are we going to do? Sit there and be miserable all day? No, yeah. you know what? We're going to have a good time, even in this you know, fairly miserable administrative scenario that we're living in. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. had a good time with it. Because some people do it on purpose where it's like, oh, dang, things are getting real tense here yeah, at work sure. or whatever. For and sure. then so they'll throw in jokes. They're going to be on that fine line between, okay, you're j- right now things are tense. Why did you say that joke? That's inappropriate. And the other side, which yeah. is like, it, it helps. You know, sometimes and like, like, okay. and like this guy and I, we would be, even in the really stressful situation where no one else was joking, yeah. I might like, you know, shoot him a look across the room and roll my <laughs> yeah, eyes yeah. at him like, you didn't see this coming, did you, yeah, tough guy? And yeah. we would just be laughing. So yeah. even in the really stressful stuff, we would we would lighten it up. Yeah. But that's because, you know, that's the personalities that we had. Yeah, yeah. All right. Speaking of not no joke whatsoever, back to the book, Major Ty, the operations officer, told us that there were increasing reports of heavy enemy concentrations on all sides of the battalion. However, General MacArthur himself was expressing impatience with the slow pace made by the 1st Marine Division in its progress toward the Chinese border. The Army was trying to light a fire under General Smith, the division commander. So you got the the Marines are saying, hey, look, it looks like we're starting to get surrounded here. And it it talks a little bit about this in the book. The Marines were kind of slow rolling. They weren't, they weren't making any great effort to go as fast as they could because they felt like they were going to be trapped. Mm. So they weren't trying to move as fast as they could. And MacArthur's, General McCarthy in Tokyo, by the way, saying, hey, hurry up. Come on, Marines. Mm. You know, the Army's pushing up there real quick. What's wrong with you guys? But they're starting to get intel reports that they're being sur- surrounded. And, oh, by the way, uh, Lieutenant Lee, who I talked about earlier, the real by-the-book guy, mm-hmm. he, he actually got wounded. And when he got wounded, taken to the hospital, he went on, he went on, he went absent without leave, AWOL. Yeah, well, yeah. He, he went AWOL from the hospital dang. to get back to the line. Oh, dang. Yeah. He's, he's <laughs> oh, no, I'm fine. My arm can't move it. It's in a sling. Doesn't matter. I'm yeah, going to fight. And speaking of Lee, talking about Lee's, Lee's platoon here, when they weren't on patrol, Lee put his men through a rigorous training program of small unit tactics. They maneuvered all over the nearby hills, and they bitched at some extra work. Lee paid little heed to the grumbling. 
Soon we will meet the enemy, he predicted to his men. We will be ready. So Lee is a hard ass. And his guys, everyone else is doing, you know, they're, they're, they're moving up north. And it, it was an easy day of patrol because remember the Chinese aren't pushing hard against him right now. So what does he do at night? Oh, oh guys, we're going to go do some work. We're going to do some tactical drills. Back to the book. It was an article of faith with Lee that combat leadership came from the front. In the attack, he positioned himself with the most advanced squad just behind the point. He wore a bright fluorescent pink vest fashioned of cloth panels that he obtained from the tactical air team. The intended purpose of the brilliantly colored panels was to mark the forward extent of our lines for supporting aircraft. Lee wore his vest so that his men could locate him quickly during a firefight. He still had a sling on his wounded right arm and he carried his carbine in his left hand. He fired from the hip, using it to shoot tracers that marked sectors. So Lee is just, I mean, a whole nother level. Whole nother level. Chu In Lee, that's his full name. Chu In Lee. Now we get into a situation. The Chinese were dug in above Lee. They had a machine gun and a line of rifles more formidable than their usual defensive formations. They were expertly deployed below the crest and their automatic weapons fired short, disciplined bursts. Tracers streaked and bullets and shrapnel swept down the slope. It took Lee some time to locate the machine gun that was giving the most trouble. When he found it, he fired one-handed to put a tracer on it. His squads moved into skirmish lines and the NCOs sent their own tracers to mark for their sectors. The bar and, and, and rifles followed sending a great volume of fire up the slope at the Chinese. Winget waved to me to let me know the mortar was ready. I aimed a tracer toward the machine gun and pumped my arm four times, the signal for 400 yards. I saw a round leave the tube and followed its path. It disappeared over the ridge line. Winget realized that he was too long and without need for my correction, he came up a turn. So he's adjusting the, where, the, where the mortar round's hitting on his own. His second round was close and I waved him to fire for effect. We seldom wasted ammo bracketing a target. Ammo carried up the hills was too valuable to be wasted on the niceties. The enemy guns slackened as wing, as wing it pounded them. Lee's squad moved up, upward, responding to the NCO signals with short bounds, fire team by fire team, five, ten yards at a dash, then to ground, bearing their enemy on the bearing fire on the enemy as the next fire team went in closer. Cover and move, it's happening again. The mortars are covering for him, and then each individual uh, fire team is covering for each other. It was the classic Marine rifle tactic that Lee had drilled into his platoon during his extra training sessions. A Marine went down and writhed on the ground. The platoon's corpsman, Bill Davis, dashed low across the slope and crouched at the wounded man's side. Another Marine fell and didn't move again. His buddy stabbed the dead man's rifle into the earth by its bayonet, then continued forward. The Chinese found it difficult to defend against Lee's energetic tactics. Our coordinated mortar and machine gun fire kept them pinned to the ground. They were no longer able to apply aimed fire, and their effectiveness diminished as our riflemen pushed closer in on them. Cover and move. By the way, there's a reason why when I wrote down the the four laws of combat, the number one rule is cover and move. Mm. This is why. Lee sent a squad crawling forward into grenade range. I signaled to wing it to cease fire, and the mortar stopped exploding along the forward crest of the hill. 
the Chinese soldiers heaved a barrage of their potato masher concussion grenades down the slope. The Marines threw a responding volley. Our grenades were more powerful, filling the air with bits of hot flying steel. Both sides dove for holds. Another volley was thrown. Lee ran forward, waving the carbine over his head and calling for his Marines to follow. They surged for the top, screaming their gung-ho and rebel yells. The Chinese withdrew. They pulled their wounded away but left their dead on the slope. Lee pushed his men over the ridge line where they prepared to defend against a counterattack. Lupacini stood beside Lee, his bar at the ready. Lupacini had appointed himself Lee's bodyguard. Sergeant Bondurant, the platoon guide, rifled through the pockets of the di- dead Chinese, gathering material for our intelligence people. I sent Kelly for a detail of the ammo carriers to bear the casualties. Bill Davis had two wounded men doped up with morphine and out of pain. And there was one Marine dead already covered by his poncho. When he was certain that the Chinese would not counterattack, Lee ordered us off the hill. End of patrol. On the return march to the company perimeter, no one complained about Lieutenant Lee's excessive training methods. He walked along the column and thanked the men for their good work. I wondered to myself how many firefights Lee would survive standing at the front of his troops clad in that brilliant pink vest. So, the excessive training, everyone's complaining when they're training, and then you get into a firefight and everyone's thankful that they had good disciplined leadership. A little bit more of Lee now at this point. Again, they're, they're continuing to get pressed by the Chinese. Back to the book, more Chinese fire had broken out far to our right in front of Lee's, in front of Lee's line. They fired from a sharp, short hill that rose from the meadow. Lee wheeled one of his rifle squads to face the rise and maneuvered them forward. Burris's gun was with Lee, and he traversed the face of the hill with HEs before the squad moved up. So HEs is high explosive mortars, and Burris is, is one of the mortarmen, and he's covering for the movement of Lee as they're pushing up. The Chinese ceased fire and withdrew quickly, a familiar tactic. Lee stayed with the main body of his platoon and sent a fire team up to reconnoiter the top. When they reached the top of the rise, the four men walked along the ridge in search of the vanished enemy. Looking up, Lee saw his men silhouetted against the skyline and yelled for them to get down. They were perfectly outlined targets. The Chinese saw them too and already had the ridgeline registered for their mortars. Their first rounds blew a marine to pieces. The next barrage claimed two more. The fourth man dove from the ridge and leaped, rolled, and stumbled down the hill. He came to a halt at the feet of Lieutenant Lee. Lee had seen three of his men needlessly killed, and he stood in silent fury. His good hand gripped his carbine so tight that his knuckles went white. Stupid, he hissed through his clenched teeth. Stupid, stupid, over and over again. Stupid. He turned to Gene O'Brien, his platoon sergeant. See to it that this never happens again, Sergeant. You tell the men, if, you, if I see another Marine on the skyline, I will shoot him myself. Lieutenant Lee strode off to be by himself until his fury and frustration subsided. So, 
you got guys making big mistakes and for those of you that don't understand what happened when you stand up on a ridge line you're completely obvious it's very clear and Lee's watching this happen and sees that his guys were a ripe target he's yelling at him but it's too late and the mortars hit mm. now we get the company here moving a little bit forward now the company is actually pinned down mm. the company's pinned down Back to the book. When the skipper had artillery's fire control on the radio, he called in the coordinates coordinates for a registration round. The battery of 105 millimeter howitzers that supported was dug in a mile and a half away. So in a mile and a half away, you got these 105 millimeter howitzers, big giant cannons. Less than a minute later, and, and you got the company commander that's calling in calling in to to tell them where to shoot these because a mile obviously you can't see there's no satellite back then you can't see so you're just going off of bearing and distance back to the book less than a minute later we heard the heavy ripping sound of the first round cutting the air over our heads it landed a hundred yards in front in front of where lee the captain and i stood stabs of flame flame like lightning from a black cloud leaped off the ground and we felt the earth tremble from the explosion Close, God damn it! too close, shouted the skipper. Then into the mic he said, add 300, repeat, add 300. So he's telling them, that means add, it means shoot 300 meters further. Mm. The next round landed further away, and we barely saw the stabs of flame. It was where the skipper wanted it. The enemy machine gun fire had stopped. The Chinese knew what would be coming at them. Repeat range. Give me concentration fire, three volleys on my command. The concentration fire would saturate the area where the Chinese were concealed. The captain waited to give the order to fire until Sergeant King had positioned the covering squad in front of us. Fire! 20 seconds later, the first rounds of the barrage landed, less than 50 yards away. Short rounds meaning that the rounds didn't go as far as they were supposed to. We dove for the deck, all of us, even Lee. The following rounds dropped among the front of the squad that first platoon had positioned to cover the company withdrawal. Screams from our own men, mud and flame and crashing thunder. The skipper yelled into the radio, cease fire, cease fire, short rounds, short rounds. Friendly fire. The worst thing that can happen in combat. Our dismal day turned to horror. Cries and moans and agonized screams pierced the black smoke that drifted over the broken ground. Doc Mickens and Joe King were already working among the wounded and mangled and dead Marines. Bill Davis and Ed Topple, the other platoon corpsmen, sprinted across the field to help. Captain Wilcox yelled into the radio as the next line of shells exploded, now away from us, farther to our front. They had been in the air before the gunners could comply with the order to cease fire. They did us no further damage, but their noise added to the hellish scene. I arose, shaken, and not sure what to do. I saw Sergeant Wright at the edge of the field and called for him to bring the ammo carriers forward. We would use them to carry the casualties away. Joe Kersaba had already brought the company headquarters people to lend a hand with the grisly work. We had four more dead and three wounded. 
Kursava went to the skipper and said that we should get the company out of this place and back down the road. The captain shook his head a few times to clear it and thought about Joe's suggestion for several seconds. Then he got Kaiser and Lee on the walkie-talkies and told them to prepare their platoons to move back. He told me to walk a screen of HEs 200 yards out to discourage any Chinese from following us. When I reported to him that the mortars were ready for the fire mission, I thought I saw tears coming down his face, although it could have been the drizzling rain. Eight dead Marines for the day, more wounded, and nothing accomplished. The rain and sleet turned to snow, wet, sticky stuff that coated the ponchos covering the dead men. The troops struggled down a wet, slippery trail to the road, burying the dead and wounded. They were soaked through and spoke no words except to blaspheme the goddamn fools who sent us into this miserable, wet, cold country. Friendly fire. Blue on blue. Think about it. Try and keep it in the front of your head. When you're in combat situations, try and keep it in the front of your head. Try and keep it as a real possibility. It's not impossible to have it happen. And the, and it's kind of like in fighting, when they say it's the it's the it's the it's the punch that you didn't see that that's the one that's going to knock you out. Mm. It's the same thing in 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 this situation. If you could see that a blue on blue was going to take place, you would stop it. Yeah. You can't see it. It's not. It's something that's going to be unexpected. That's why it happens. It happens because it's unexpected. And this one, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen once you start bringing uh, artillery in. There's a bunch of variables there that are really hard to control. But it is obviously it's a nightmare. It's it's a it's a nightmare. And and I was having this conversation with one of my SEAL buddies the other day. That's why you train hard. That's why you prepare for it. That's why you create chaos and confusion inside of your training so that you actually force blue on blue. You force blue on blues to happen. You force these fratricide situations to happen so that they happen in training, mm. so that they don't happen on the battlefield. Mm. And it, it it's... You know, same thing with the police department. The police department sometimes has has blue on blues. Train hard. Set up the crazy scenarios. Make people do unexpected things. All right. They come down from that scenario, and they get a day arrest. You might think, hey, you know, you took eight, eight killed and multiple more wounded. Hey, we'll give you some time off. They got time off one day. One day arrest, and then they're back on the march. Back to the book, the column marched north in a cold, swirling wind that swept the road clear of snow. We put on the ponchos again to help ward off the wind. They soon froze stiff and crackled as we walked. And if you notice, as they left that other situation, the rain turned to sleet and then to snow. So that's like in one hour, winter was here. Mm. And so now you're going to now you're going to start hearing about the cold big time. Mm. The men were in a foul temper. What kind of stupid bastards we got running this goddamn war came from the column. Don't worry about them guys running this goddamn war. They're sitting by a stove someplace, sticking pins in their maps. 
Yeah, and they'll get their pick of cold weather gear before they send us send it up to us poor suckers. Guy in the battalion mess line said them rear echelon bastards are already wearing big fur coats and winter issue boat boots. That's okay. We'll get the stuff next spring. Sure, what's left of it, by the time it gets to us, we'll be needing jungle gear. So these guys are just letting out their frustration and anger. The worst suffering that day came from our feet. We only had thin cotton socks under the boondockers, little protection from the cold, especially as they were still damp under our leggings. We stomped away the freezing toes, the pain of the freezing toes, and kept the blood circulating. There were complaints of numbness. Some men felt as if they had pebbles in their socks. We didn't know about frostbite yet. If you don't know what boondockers are, they're your basic, like the most basic form of a boot. Leather, rubber sole, that's it. Mm. That's what that's what boondockers are. They got cotton socks. Now they get some new gear, and one of the pieces that they get is called shoe packs. Going to the book, shoe packs would change the way we walked and bring us the crippling scourge of frostbite. They were big and cumbersome, twice the weight of our boondockers. They had thick molded rubber bottoms with heavily cleated soles. The tops, from the ankle up to the shin were made of stiff leather that laced tightly. Shoe packs were clumsy for climbing climbing and slippery on the ice. The worst thing about them, however, was that they were laced, uh, when they were laced up, no air could circulate. On a steep climb or on a long march, our feet would sweat no matter how cold it was. When we stopped moving and the cold set in, the sweat-soaked felt inserts and socks would freeze. Long stretches of wet, frozen feet spelled frostbite. And I don't know if you remember this from the last one we did, but and I didn't include it, but one of the videos that they showed later to the, to the uh, soldiers and Marines that were going over to Korea was to warn them of frostbite, and it was the doctors with the frostbitten feet and and they weren't surgically removing the toes. They would just like break them off like because they were just frozen dead toes and they would just break it. That's the video. They showed them, hey, keep your feet dry. Dang. But it was these poorly designed shoes was one of the problems that they try. Oh, we'll make these guys these super warm boots. Mm-hmm. Doesn't It's not that easy. Yeah. It's not that easy. You make them so warm and so waterproof, no air escapes from them. Now you got sweaty feet. Now your feet are going to freeze. Now we get this, uh, one of the replacements that comes in is a guy named Woody Taylor. You're going to hear a little bit about him. And there's a a little firefight that takes place. And Captain Wilcox, who's the company commander, maneuvers some of Woody Taylor's guys. He says, hey, you guys go check that out over there. Mm. Woody Taylor doesn't like it. Those are my men, says Woody Taylor. So here we go. Captain Wilcox, Taylor called loudly loudly to the skipper. If you don't, I've I've used the word skipper a bunch. Mm. I should have explained what it is. Skipper means the commanding officer of the company, just, just, just like the skipper of a ship. Captain Wilcox, Taylor called loudly to the skipper. He was red-faced and out of breath from the run up the column. That's a squad from my platoon you sent over there on the flank. Yeah, Lieutenant, I saw a few bandits over there. Captain, those are my men, Taylor interrupted. My platoon moves on my orders. 
Captain Wilcox glared at Lieutenant Taylor. I'd seen that cold look many times before when it had been leveled on me. I figured that Woody Taylor would not be long with Baker 1-7. Our new lieutenant and the captain stared at each other. Woody calmed down a notch. Sir, he said, I'd much appreciate it if you put any orders to my men through me. Colonel Davis set me up here to run this platoon. That's what I reckon to do. Taylor and the skipper were eyeball to eyeball. And the skipper realized that he had indeed violated the chain of command. Yep, Lieutenant, he said, you're right. That's your platoon, and I guess we understand each other. I guess we do, Captain, said Woody Taylor. All right, then, carry on. The skipper dismissed his new platoon leader. We figured Woody Taylor was going to have was going to be one hell of a fighter. He was the last replacement officer to come to Baker 17, and he was with us to stay. It's a little standoff. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of little things that go on there, right? Number one, Taylor was too aggressive out of the gate. You know, hey, those are my guys. Yeah, that was too aggressive. He was able to catch himself and back off and say, hey, sir, I'd really appreciate it. He, if he'd have come with that attitude from the beginning, he would have he would have had a better chance of making what he wanted to have happen with no risk because there was a risk here. There was yeah. a risk here that Captain Wilcox was say, shut up. Mm-hmm. It might be your platoon. It's my, it's my company. You don't talk to me about this again. Mm-hmm. He could have said that. Mm-hmm. But also, he's a good leader. That when got pressed on this, he said, well, let me, let me, let me detach. Mm-hmm. Instead of getting mad, he was getting mad. He detached. He said, okay, wait a second. What's going on here? This young lieutenant that's in charge of the platoon, I just ordered his guys around without telling him. Now he's mad about it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. He's calmed down. He's, he's, he's talking to me in a better tone now. He's just asking me that he's appreciated. I can accept that. I was a little out of line. Cool. Yep, you got it. And, and they were able to solve that problem. So just a little, little dynamics, some dynamics out on the battlefield going on. More firefights happen. More madness going on. They get through the next situation. And now we have Colonel Davis again. This is the Medal of Honor winner who's who's in charge here. Back to the book. Colonel Davis came up to Baker 17 to inform us that we were moving out again. Tomorrow morning we would advance up the west side of the Chosen Reservoir. Our objective was the town of Udomni, 14 miles away. This was not a patrol. Our battalion commander told us it was an attack and we should expect the fighting to get serious, right? So they haven't had any serious fighting, right? Oh, no, wait. Yes, they have, but expected to get more serious. When he finished briefing the officers, Colonel Davis asked me to bring Sergeant Wright to him. The hardship transfer order had finally come through and our colonel wanted to say goodbye personally to a good Marine NCO. It was a great moment for Sergeant Wright. All the company officers were there, and the colonel expressed his appreciation and best wishes to my departing sergeant. Captain Wilcox and the lieutenants added their own well-dones. Sergeant Wright had done a good job of whipping the mortar section into shape and keeping them squared away. The mortars had a farewell party for their sergeant, who had been up with them since the first day at Camp Pendleton. The rifle platoon corpsmen came by, Mickens and Davis and Topple, each bringing a canteen of sick bay alcohol. The skipper and Joe Kursaba joined us in for a few toasts. When he was ready to leave, weapon and gear all squared away like a proud, like a parade ground marine, Sergeant Wright approached me. His eyes glistened 
probably mine did too. Sir, I think we did some good with these people. I want to thank you for giving me a chance to serve in your outfit. Thank you, Sergeant Wright. You're a fine Marine NCO. God bless you and your family. Sergeant Wright snapped the salute at me and strode off. I would never see him again, and I would miss him very much. So Sergeant Sergeant Wright headed home. I guess uh, it was his time, and he'd pushed on when when he could have gone home a lot earlier, but he pushed on, and now they're getting ready to make this next move, and, it, and he has his orders now in hand, and orders are orders, so he heads out. Back to the book, the weather turned ugly again as we formed up to resume, resume the attack to the north. A bitter cold wind greeted us, filled with a stinging, gritty snow. It was my birthday. After the troops were squared away, I crouched in the ditch alongside the road and took some time to go through my snapshots. I thought of Dorothy teaching the happy birthday song to the babies and how they would try and sing it. I saw their little pink cheeks and blue eyes and Dorothy's golden hair. Rough way for him to spend his birthday. And as you sit here today, wherever you're listening to this, know that somewhere in the world there's an American serviceman that's out there celebrating their birthday in a similar manner, I guarantee it, away from his family and his loved ones. What else does he get out for his birthday? He gets some enemy activity. Back to the book, the enemy fire became heavy. About 50 Chinese were dug in against us and they were serious about defending this place. Lee took his platoon off the road to extend our firing line. Captain Wilcox came forward with Garcia and the big radio and set up in the ditch just behind Kaiser. I marveled at his easy, ambling gait during firefights. He always stood up straight. Just like JP. The static of the SCR 300 radio added to the pounding of our own machine guns and bars. Rifles cracked. Johnson's mortar thumped out HEs and enemy bullets zinged through the air and spun off chips of boulders. Soon came the urgent cries, Corman, oh God, Corman. And the fear came, as it did to me on the onset of every fight. The Corman cries, the booming explosions, and the whine of bullets, blood-trenched parkas. Dear God, not this time, please. Platoon Sergeant King from Taylor's platoon crouched among some large boulders above me. He shouted down that there was a machine gun near the spike of rocks that marked the Chinese main position. I willed myself to climb up and get a better look. The fear submerged and the cold was forgotten. Overcome that fear, take action. Now they continue in this little firefight and then finally we get and I've talked about them before, we get some air support, some Marine Corps air support. We got some Marines on the ground that are pilots, what we now call Anglico. The Marines are on the ground. These are fighter pilots that go out and do infantry work and call for fire. And so here we go, back to the book. Bob Wilson brought in the Corsairs that were on station to cover our advance. I called down to Burris to lay down a round of white phosphorus to mark the Chinese guns, and the flyers came in on the column of white smoke. They flew in low, barely above us. Their great racketing noise overpowered all other sounds as they flashed by. 
on the first passes they fired the machine guns and cannons these had little effect the Chinese were dug in too well they followed with a napalm run a spectacular spectacle of awesome and terrible beauty the pods slid from the planes tumbled across the ground then exploded Black smoke billowed and red flame leaped against the white snow and seconds later we felt the blast of heat that consumed the ground 200 yards away. Chinese soldiers were aflame, running about in frenzied circles. They threw themselves flailing into the snow. There was sudden silence. The Chinese ceased fire and our own weapons were quiet. We were stunned by the power of that close-end flaming strike. 200 yards away that's not a big distance that might seem like a big distance that is not a big distance when you're in an airplane and you're coming down to drop napalm and kill a bunch of people that's a tiny distance mm-hmm. marine corps pilots just getting after it it's called danger close by the way so if you're going to call in an airstrike that's close to your positions you have to say on the radio you say danger close meaning look i know it's close by you got to do it right right Going so they, they they snifle out that one, but guess what? The the Chinese are far from done. Back to the book. The Chinese showed that they would not hibernate from the war because of the cold weather. The farther we advanced, the stiffer was their resistance. The hills continued to grow steeper, and each climb we made encumbered with the heavy clothing became its own ordeal. Most of our fights were platoon-sized. Kaiser or Lee or Taylor maneuvering up a slippery snow-covered slope to dislodge a force of Chinese who fired at us down the road. So as they're moving down this road, they're just having to go into the high ground all the time and take out the Chinese. Here's a, here's a, a, a cool little anecdotal story. They get pinned down and Colonel Davis is there and they're trying to figure out what to do. I'm going to the book. Colonel Davis was at the head of our column with Captain Wilcox when the Chinese opened up from across the chasm 300 yards away. The skipper called me up front. Can you knock out those guns, Captain Wilcox asked. He and the colonel crouched, their acknowledgement of machine gun slugs that tore into the slope above our heads. Yes, sir, I answered, crouching alongside my two commanders. So there's a machine gun up on the hill. And they can't get it with their guns, but they want him to get his, his mortar tubes up there and then drop mortar rounds on the, on the machine gun position. So he yells out to his runner. So his runner is just a guy that spreads word. He runs out to his, his runner. Kelly, bring up Johnson's gun, I commanded. Hugo was with uh, Kaiser's platoon leading the column that day. They were just behind the bend. Aye, aye, sir, snapped my runner in a way to impress the colonel. Colonel Davis and Captain Wilcox continued to scan the opposite slope. 11 o'clock, said the colonel, indicating slight movement in an outcropping of of boulders. Yes, sir, I have it, I told my colonel as I located the enemy machine gun through my own binoculars. And another one at 10 o'clock, 50 yards higher, sir. Good eyes, Lieutenant, said Colonel Davis. There was a sudden commotion behind us. The sound of Marines singing as they double-timed up the road. Kelly was leading the mortar men forward. And he had them sounding cadence with his parody of an army marking song, song, marching song, sound off. How can a mortar man survive following a man who's six foot five? Sound off. Put your rifles and machine guns away. The 60 mortars are all in the way. Sound off. Sound off. So <laughs> they're in a firefight. They're pinned down. 
And these guys come running up the road singing cadence. And by the way, I forgot to mention this, that Owen is six foot five. So he, that's who they're talking about. There was no ditch. So Hugo could not take cover from enemy fire while setting up his gun. He and Dean Westberg spread the bipod on the rear, of, on the rear edge of the flat open road surface. I stood behind the gun as they worked quickly. The volume of bullets increased. 11 o'clock, Hugo, I said, give me 3-5-0. I fired a tracer from my shoulder. Westberg had a mortar round ready. Hugo, with his sharpshooter's eye, spotted the target and said, 3-5-0 plus a hair. He laid the tube in the direction of the machine gun and cranked his elevation. Fire, he said to Westberg. The round thumped out and we followed its arc, ignoring the Chinese bullets that were bouncing off the frozen surface of the road and the slope behind us. The first round was a direct hit. God bless you, Hugo Johnson. Captain Wilcox called out for the platoon to continue the march. Colonel Davis approached the gun. He had a big smile. You tell your men their shooting is right on, Lieutenant, he said. He glanced at our choir director, Kelly, and added, but tell them that their singing is way off key. Like I said, even having a good time in madness of firefights. The cold is getting brutal. Back to the book, we seldom removed our knitted gloves that we wore under the canvas mittens. Bare fingers we found froze to metal. They froze to weapons, bayonets, buckles, whatever we touched. The cold forced the corpsmen to change their way of doing business. With the first sounds of a firefight, they would take several serrets of morphine and put them into their mouths. This kept the morphine liquid until the serrets were jabbed into the wounded man's flesh to relieve his pain. The corpsmen were the only ones who worked with bare hands in the severe cold, and they found a way to keep their fingers nimble while attending to a wounded man. The heat of the man's blood did the trick, or his guts, as they were stuffed back into his belly. Freezing cold. Back to the book. Despite our efforts to keep the men in clean, dry socks, we were losing the fight against frostbite, which resulted from damp, cold feet. The men would complain of pains or numbness in their feet, and when they limped badly, we sent them to battalion aid station. Many never returned. Some had waited too long to turn themselves in, and by the time the doctors saw them, their toes had become purplish-black, and had to be amputated. Because the ground was frozen hard, digging good fighting holes was nearly impossible. Digging in became a matter of chipping a shallow pit in the unyielding earth beneath the snow, then barricading it with rocks or tree branches. If any dead Chinese were found on the hill, we added their stiff corpses to the barricades. To make level places for their guns, the mortarmen took turns at the concrete-like dirt with entrenching tools and combat knives. And they're continuing in this freezing cold. They get to a point where they're in sort of an open area. And we'll go to the book. The Chinese maneuvered down from the ridge lines all around us. They ran across the snow in squad columns, then formed firing lines among the boulders or prone in the snow. 
Chinese mortars began to fall on us in the CP, which was 50 yards, or us and the CP, which was 50 yards behind us. A round exploded close by and lifted me off the ground. I was dazed for a while, and when full awareness returned, Kelly had me by the arm, leading me toward the CP. Where are we going, Kelly? I didn't understand why we were heading away from the line. Get a corpsman to look at you. I thought you were a goner back there. He pointed to my parka flapping around my knees. It had shrapnel holes in it. They don't get closer than that to tearing your balls off. It's a good thing you got me around, Lieutenant. The corpsman at the CP was far too busy with the seriously wounded to tend to my mild concussion. The casualties lay in blanket-covered rows. Doktorsky, Davis, and Topple, those are the corpsmen, went from one to the other. They jabbed morphine, slowed bleeding, cleaned out holes, blasted in flesh, patched them, and wrapped them as best they could. The corpsmen had their mouth filled with, mouths filled with serrets of morphine, and their bare hands were bloody. When they worked with, the, they worked with enemy mortars exploding, bullets stabbing the air two feet above them. Weak, frightened voices called for their help. Doc Mickens from 1st Platoon took some shrapnel, then a, 25, then a slug in the leg where he was patching the wounded in action on Woody Taylor's line. The stretcher bearers dragged Mickens to the CP and laid him in the line of casualties. Next to him, damning the Chinese in his Arkansas drawl, was Sergeant King, who had been blasted by grenades and hit by a burp gun. Paul Rendon, a machine gunner with the platoon, lay there too, a leg shot up. The first platoon's rapid. The first platoon was being rapidly de- depleted, and was having a hell of a fight holding their end of the perimeter. So these guys were in a perimeter, like I said, in sort of an open area, and the Chinese just come down and they're in a full-on attack on them, full-on. Back to the book. The afternoon light faded, and we worried about whether the ammo would run out. The Chinese had fully encircled us. Their volume of fire was just enough to keep us pinned down. They would wait for dark, then swarm over our lines. They had plenty of people to do the job. Our bayonets were fixed and our grenades ready. Every man had a target sector and we kept fire discipline to conserve ammo. We began to settle in and wait for dark. As bullets zinged, grenades exploded, and Marines cried for help, someone yelled out that cop Captain Wilcox had been hit. He had taken a bullet to the face, and a piece of shrapnel had shattered his arm. Joe Kersaba took over as our skipper. As soon as we heard about the captain, we ran to the CP. We found him there, his head wrapped in a big white ball of a bandage, unable to speak. His blood-soaked sleeve dangled beside him. He kept struggling to get on his feet when the docs put him down on his spread-out poncho. After a while, the morphine kicked in, and the skipper nodded off, groaning softly. Before they stabilized the line around us, the Chinese pushed the first platoon back almost to the CP. So you got the platoons. The CP is the is the kind of like the brains of the unit, right? They got the different platoons are out in the perimeter in 360 degrees, and then in the center of that, you got the command post, the CP, and you have the radio men in there, you have the people that are gonna do fire support, maybe the mortar section's in there, and then you have the leadership is in that CP, but now we start to see that the, the platoons are getting pushed back towards the CP, they're losing their perimeter. 
just as Joe Kersaba came in to take over command of the company, Woody Taylor stormed in, demanding that we get the hell out of here. The gooks have all the high ground. They got us surrounded, he boomed. They're gonna pick us to pieces tonight. Joe Kersaba answered him quietly. We need air support to run interference for us. Then we might be able to make a break for the road. They better get to work mighty fast, said Woody. We only have a few minutes of daylight left. So there's Joe Kersaba's keeping it cool. Again, World War II vet, now just out here getting after it. And that's what they need. So what they need is they need the Corsairs to come in, which if you don't know what a Corsair, Corsair is an awesome aircraft, World War II vintage. And you can tell them because they have very distinctive wings that have a a distinctive bend in them. And they're very... uh, very distinctive looking aircraft and obviously very good at, at close air support. Back to the book, all afternoon Joe Hedrick, the air controller, had attempted to get a piece of the air support dedicated to the 5th Marines. So there was aircraft working on another group of Marines, working for another group of Marines. Now in the remaining minutes of daylight he caught a flight of four Corsairs in search of action. And he calls those things in, gets, gets them on the horn, calls them in, and here we go. The four Corsairs streaked in low above us, pointing themselves at the Chinese positions less than 100 yards away. They dropped their big earth-shaking bombs, and they scathed the long, deep valley with rockets and heavy caliber slugs. The Chinese took cover, and we moved out. So it, that's cover and move once again. All they needed to do to get out of the situation was they needed someone to cover for their movement. That's what they needed, and they couldn't supply it themselves because they were shooting uphill, didn't have the firepower. In come the Corsairs to get after it and give them cover to move. Back to the book, I lost Grauman that day, the lad who, who had tried hard to be a good combat Marine. He was running toward me carrying a helmet filled with grenades taken from the wounded when a bullet tore through his throat. The shot didn't knock him down at first, just threw his head back and I saw a fountain of blood spurt from his neck. He staggered a few steps, then fell face forward in the snow, which quickly turned red. When I got to him, he was already dead. It took hours more for a Baker 17 to make its way the mile down the road. Colonel Davis brought elements of Charlie Company out to meet us. We loaded our dead and wounded on waiting trucks and sent them back to Udomni. The Chinese had cut off the MSR, that's a, that's a main supply route, between Udomni and Hagaruri, the colonel informed us. So now they are truly trapped. On the march back into the Udomni perimeter, past midnight, the men were silent, spent from this cold, brutal day. And Captain Wilcox had been a good skipper. And when they get there, Lee was waiting for us when we staggered into Udomni perimeter. Many of the men limped with the first stages of frostbite, and there were some walking wounded who had elected to stay with the company. Undisguised tears ran down Lee's face when he saw the column make its way in. And that was the reason that Lee wasn't with them was because he literally got ordered to, to, that he couldn't go because his arm was becoming infected. And he, he, was, he could not, they would not let him go. 
And so he's there, and undisguised tears ran down his face as he saw the column make its way in. Joker Saber firmed us up at first light while the Corsairs were blazing at enemy hills. He told us that we were going to aid Char- going to the aid of Charlie Company, which had been posted on Turkey Hill to guard the MSR. Last night, after we marched away from that area, the Chinese had poured out of the hills and surrounded Charlie. Charlie was fighting for its life when we went to pull them out. So there's a, there's a small company of Marines, Charlie Company, and they are surrounded. They go up and one of the, one of the Able companies, so you got Able, Baker, and Charlie. Able Company sets up on the flank and then Baker also patrols up and kind of sets up to, to come to their aid. Back to the book. Through my binoculars, I had a good view of Charlie's perimeter. 400 yards away. They were in a tight circle, not more than 75 yards across, halfway up the slope of Turkey Hill. Chinese machine guns and rifles infested the hill around them, firing at any Marine who moved. Charlie's people were thoroughly pinned down. So picture this, a, a little circle. All your, your whole company, maybe there's 100, maybe there could be 150, but I think they've taken a bunch of wounded at this point. They've got 100 guys in a little 75-meter circle. And you're all pinned down, and no matter, every time you move, every time his head gets stuck up, you're getting shot at. Back to the book, Lee put his machine guns on the Chinese who were firing into Charlie's perimeter from the lower slope. My three mortars had the same target. Abel's machine gun and mortars raked the hill above the perimeter. Soon our tracers lined the sky and puffs of black smoke from the mortars dotted the rocky hill. Then the big shells from artillery and the battalion's 81 started to fall and the hill rocked with their explosions. Chinese soldiers scurried for cover. My classmate, pay attention to this, my classmate Jim Stemple led Abel's assault down the ridgeline and into the Chinese. The enemy soldiers had their heads down from the heavy covering fire, once again covering fire, and Stemple's platoon tore into them. Through the binoculars, I observed one squad of Temple's Marines led by a giant of a man in a flapping parka who swung a huge double-headed axe. The Chinese soldiers, seeing this great maniacal devil charge at them brandishing a bloody axe, abandoned their positions in terror. So, there you have it. I've never, I never... I don't even know where you get a battle axe in the midst of the Korean War, but this Marine right here attacks the Chinese, not with grenades, not with a bar, not with a machine gun. He attacks with a freaking battle axe. Back to the book, the Chinese quickly lifted their siege of Charlie Company and made a rapid retreat from Turkey Hill. As they fled Able Company's downhill assault, they had to cross Baker's line of fire. Woody Taylor's platoon had come up to extend our line, and every weapon we had was trained on the Chinese as they ran to the protecting slopes on the other side of the valley. Turkey shoot at Turkey Hill, our people called it. We were at rapid fire with the mortars and machine gun and machine guns, the bars and the and the rifles, even Kovar's rocket launcher. Few Chinese made it all the way across the gauntlet of exploding flame and steel. They dropped in heaps even before the Australian planes came down on them. We hadn't worked with the Australians before, and they were out to prove that they were as gung-ho as our own Marine Corps pilots. 
They came roaring low along the valley from behind us, and when they passed above Lee's glowing pink vest, they dropped even closer to the ground. They're, they're low enough to cut off the chink's pigtails, Kelly quipped. The planes had their, blood, their guns blazing, and the Chinese went down in bunches. The Australians made two passes. At the end of their second low-level assault, there were no Chinese soldiers left to shoot at. It took almost every able-bodied man that Charlie Company had to bring down their dead and wounded. Their overnight defense of Turkey Hill had cost dearly. And they got one more rescue mission, basically, to do. There was a uh, Fox Company is now in another situation, in a horrible scenario. And first, Baker 1-7 needs to get to them. And it is a treacherous, treacherous movement. And they decide, you remember early in the book, he said, you know, we weren't used to night fighting. Mm-hmm. They mostly worked during the day. Well, they decide that they need to do this at night. Mm-hmm. So they go on this patrol at night. Going back to the book. Under the heavy parkas, our bodies sweated with the strain, but our hands and feet were frozen numb. The wind-borne cold attacked with terrible fury. When we stopped for bearings, we stood silent and motionless. Because we needed to maintain silence, we could not slap our hands against our sides or stomp our feet for circulation. The cold gnawed at our toes and fingers and ate into our bodies. The sweat we had generated while climbing froze against our skin. We shivered violently. Men muttered through their clenched teeth, let's move out, goddammit, we're freezing to death here. And they push on. I returned to the side of the column. Many men had collapsed in the snow, curled into balls like Eskimo dogs. NCOs moved along the fallen, prodding and kicking, urging them to their feet. I collided with another Marine churning forward through the snow. Both of us fell, and as we wearily recovered, I realized that I had knocked down Colonel Davis. What's the holdup, Lieutenant? Was all my battalion commander said. Then he continued breaking through the snow to the head of the column. Time had no meaning. We labored through infinite darkness in ghostly clouds of snow over an icy path that rose and fell but seemed to lead nowhere. We saw only the back of a man's head, a hunched figure in a long, shapeless parka whose every tortured step was an act of will. We carried on with the only strength that was left to us, Marine Corps discipline. They finally get within range after this brutal, freezing march. And here we go. The night exploded with the flash and sound of the fight. The Marines had the advantage of surprise and momentum. They fought with fierce energy now released from hours of cold and misery. The Chinese could do little more than try to escape. Many of them were unarmed and most ran off to the south. So the, the, the Chinese run. There's some firing, there's some shooting, but it's pretty much a rout because they had gone at night and they had pushed hard and they had that surprise and violence of action. Back to the book. Dawn arrived. 
gray and cold and we jumped off the second phase of the breakthrough. Abel and Baker attacked online, headed out for Fox Hill a thousand yards away. Minutes after we moved out, Kaiser's platoon on the left walked into heavy small arms machine gun fire from a ridge on his flank. The 60s responded with HE on the ridge and Kaiser's people broke through the deep snow to mount the hill. When they neared the ridge line, we lifted mortar fire and the platoon drove through the enemy position on its own firepower. Cover and move added again. We were astonished by our first view of Fox Hill. The snowfield that led up to the embattled company's position was covered with hundreds of dead Chinese soldiers. Many of them seemed to sleep under blankets of drifted snow, but their bodies were frozen in spasms of pain. There were jumbles of corpses in padded green uniforms. A white-clad column had fallen in the formation that had attracted the attention of Fox Company's machine gunners. Craters of dirt and snow made by the big guns were rimmed with bodies and parts of men. Thick bands of dead Chinese lay at the base of Fox Company's perimeter. We stood in wonder. Men bowed their heads in prayer. Some fell to their knees. Others breathed quietly, oaths, oaths of disbelief. Tears came to the eyes of raggedy Marines who had endured bitter cold and savage battle to reach this place of suffering and courage. Someone let loose a wild cheer and we broke forward in a jubilant run. Across the snow-covered and corpse-filled battlefield, the Marines of Fox Company waved brightly colored banners, the blue, yellow, and red remnants of the parachute drops that had sustained them for nearly a week. Around their perimeter, Fox Company had constructed barricades of frozen Chinese bodies. From behind these walls of of the from behind these walls of dead the marines had mounted their weapons and maintained a fight against an enemy whose numbers never ceased now the men of fox company arose from behind these gruesome piles to join us arm slings and blood soaked compresses were common among them men hobbled about with makeshift leg splints all hands were haggard and dirty as were we we exchanged profane greetings that did not conceal the love that we Marines felt for each other. The sun came out and Marines appeared along the skylines to the north. Then we saw Marines marching down the MSR towards us. There were columns of riflemen at first, followed by a long trail of vehicle and vehicles and artillery pieces. Our Corsairs swooped in close, their crooked wings wagging in salute. The 5th and 7th Marines had broken out of Udomni. Now, they broke out. They have a path, but they still have to go 14 miles to get out of there. Back to the book, all the platoon sergeants had been hit. As were most of the squad leaders, we had corporals and privates stepping into leadership billets, but they were combat experienced Marines and they knew the work. The Marine column that came out of the besieged Udomni had hundreds of jeeps, ambulances, and trucks, as well as the big guns of the artillery regiment. Many of the trucks were filled with wounded men, and some were stacked with the corpses of our own killed in action. The walking wounded, so now you got a picture of this column, like almost like a Mad Max looking column. 
The walking wounded who could carry a weapon were turned to as riflemen to protect the column. Every man who could walk, hobble, or limp was ordered off the trucks. The only riders were those serious cases. The gut wounds and blinded men along with severe leg wounds and men with frostbite so bad that they would need amputation. Many of the wounded died in the trucks. Some froze to death and some were shot by the infiltrators. The 14-mile ride was three days and nights of grim survival. The rifle companies of the 5th and 7th Marines stayed in the hills guarding the MSR as the column pulled in to Hagaruri. The garrison town came out to meet the bedraggled Marines who had run the 14-mile gauntlet of fire and ice. As the walking wounded came within sight of the town, someone commanded them to fall into ranks. Maybe it was the limping sergeant who gave the command, the old salt who had set the defenses along Bob Fisher's stretch of the column. It could have been Father Griffin, or Sergeant Wingett, or Corporal Burris, or Corporal Johnson. The wounded men, and some who were unharmed but who staggered from exhaustion, formed up into three files, shouldered their weapons, and marched in ragged step. Slowly, the tread of their thick, rubber-soled shoe packs on the icy road became a steady, sure cadence, and the haggard and hurt Marines put their heads high. Captain Wilcox, who couldn't carry a weapon, was in the forward ranks. His arm was in a huge cast and splinted so it was horizontal to the deck. His head and face were a cocoon of bandages. But holding himself erect, he picked up the cadence and marched standing straight into Hagaruri. A battalion sergeant, a battalion surgeon, took time away from the hundreds of wounded men he tended in the aid station to witness the column's arrival. Those bastards, those magnificent bastards were the words the doctor used to describe the worn and torn Marines from Udomni. And I want you to I want you to picture that image. That image of these hundreds of men just battered, wounded, barely even able to walk, frostbitten. And they're meandering into camp. And when they get close, someone says, hey, fall in. And they fall into ranks. And they begin to march. Will. That's human will. And it's human will under the power of leadership. And he doesn't even know who gave that order. Somebody said, fall in the ranks. It's the right thing to do. And they do it. They find more. They find, they dig deeper to fall into ranks and hold their heads high as they walk back into town. Back to the book. Except for the road we had opened, Hagaruri was under siege, surrounded by many thousands of Chinese soldiers. They had been held off by a battalion of the 1st Marines and hundreds of rear echelon people who had reverted to riflemen. 
For three days and nights, the cooks and bakers, truck drivers and artillerymen, office pinkies and technicians dug in alongside infantry marines. They threw back every thrust the Chinese made against the Hagaruri perimeter. American soldiers were there too, army technical support people who picked up rifles and bars and went up the hills and filled in the marine lines. Wherever there were gaps, the artillery threw in massive bombardments. During daylight hours, the Corsairs flew in low with bombs, rockets, and napalm to help hold the attackers at bay. The three divisions of Chinese who tried to isolate the 5th and 7th Marines, plus those who had been at Fox Hill, followed us south. And now they added their numbers to the encirclement of Hagaruri. The single road, the MSR to Koto Ri, and our only way out was cut off. The hills that flanked that road were high and steep, and there were as many Chinese embedded in them as there had been at Udomni, so they're still completely surrounded. But all this stuff is happening, they're still surrounded. The engineers with their heavy earth-moving equipment had dynamited the frozen ground and leveled an airfield large enough for cargo planes to fly in and out of Hagaruri. Air Force pilots flew in the big, clumsy planes loaded with replacements, rations, and ammunition. For the return trip, they filled the planes with the most seriously wounded. When they landed and took off, They had to fly low between the hills that lined the valley. The planes became slow-moving targets for the Chinese guns in the hills. And everyone that left Hagaruri was perforated with bullet holes. The men on the ground marveled at the courage of the Air Force pilots who kept flying in and out of there. So you got just cargo pilots flying into this place. Insanity. Now... They're in a position on a perimeter because just because they survived all that, they still got to go back out and hold perimeter. <laughs> they get out to hold perimeter, and here we go. Back to the book. Through my glasses, I saw a column of 15 riflemen marching toward us out of Hagaruri. There were two files of them moving at a brisk pace alongside the road, but alongside both sides of the road. They wore crisp white parkas and swung their arms smartly. Because they were clean-shaven and energetic, we assumed they were fresh replacements flown in from the airstrip. We found out later that these clean and jaunty troops were Royal British Marines who had fought their way into Hagaruri from the south. They, too, had found the MSR blocked, and they had punched through the Chinese forces far superior to them in number. They were the 41st Commando, a unit that roughly compared in size to one of our own rifle companies. Like us, these Marines had suffered heavy casualties. The Royal Marine Column halted and spread into ditches along the road near our CP. A freshly groomed young officer strode toward Kelly, Topple, and me. With the young officer was a grizzled sergeant whose proper military bearing could have come straight from the pages of Kipling. The sergeant had a meticulously trimmed broad mustache that would have stirred Gunny Buckley's envy. Like the lieutenant, the sergeant was dazzling clean and squared away. My binoculars hung around my neck, which is how the lieutenant distinguished me as an officer. 
Certainly there was little other difference be- among Kelly and Topple and me. Our parkers were all stained with blood, food, gun, oil, dirt. Our filthy faces were matted with bristly beards that bore icicles of mucus and spittle. The lieutenant concealed his disdain for our appearance, braced himself, and delivered a broad hand salute. I say, sir, we've ordered to extend our patrol beyond your lines. I'm to get up the covering machine guns, and I would be most grateful for your suggestions. I appreciated the British lieutenant's courtesy, and if I possessed a razor, I would have shaved on the spot to make myself more presentable. This is one of the reasons I included this, because people always ask me, you know, you ever work with any other militaries, and I've worked with the British, and people say, you know, how are they? Well, this is how the British are. The British are outstanding. The British are so professional. It's, 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 it's in, so impressive. They're like impeccable, just the way they're described here. That's the way the British are. That's the way the British military is. They're outstanding. Back to the book, the Royal Marine Lieutenant and his sergeant followed me to our machine gun positions and they checked out the fields of fire for their own mission. As we walked the line together, we exchanged observations about fighting the Chinese. The British Lieutenant knew what he was talking about. Talk a little bit about the army units. The army outfits that went east of the reservoir were hurriedly patched together and poorly equipped for their mission. The artillery and tanks that were to support their advance were not organized in time to accompany them when they moved north of ha- out of Hagururi. The heavy weapons that aided the marine breakout west of the reservoir were not there for the army. And many of the soldiers in that fight had not yet received cold weather gear. Scores of them froze to death. It was the Army's bad fortune, too, that a large number of its officers and experienced NCOs had been knocked out of the battle at the onset. The two senior commanders, a a colonel and a lieutenant colonel, were killed at the front of their troops. Most of the company commanders and platoon leaders went down. In a short time, the casualties of all ranks outnumbered the able-bodied, and some of the wounded had to be left behind. Platoons and squads dwindled to a few men and coalesced into small bands that fought until their ammunition was gone. Those who could walk or crawl then made their way back across the frozen reservoir to the marine lines at Hagaruri. For the soldiers, it was a disastrous fight, but it had one good effect. The Chinese division that mauled them was aimed at the attack on Hagaruri. The fight the soldiers put up on the east side of the reservoir had slowed their advance, and that bought valuable time for the Marines. When the Army survivors made their way into Hagaruri, those who could still carry on were re-equipped and formed into a provisional battalion that became part of the 1st Marine Division. They fought alongside us for the remainder of the campaign. Now, like I said, at this point, they're still surrounded and they need to now break out to get south to a town called Hongnam where there's a port where they're going to be extracted. They're going to be pulled out. Back to the book, 1-7, our battalion and 2-7 were to lead the breakout from Koto-ri. 1-7 was to take the high ground 
east of the road, 27 the west. Four miles on the MSR, the Chinese had blown out a bridge over a deep chasm. The battalion of 1st Marines coming from the south would take the ground that commanded the other side of that gap. Then the engineers would put in a new bridge. Beyond that was a full army division, the third waiting to give us cover. After we crossed the bridge, the army would take over the fighting. All we needed to do was get a few more divisions, get through a few more divisions of Chinese soldiers. So even on the division level, 10,000, we're talking cover and move. Even on the division level. So it's an individual thing. It's a squad thing. It's a platoon thing. It goes all the way up to the division level because they need to have the cover of the army to get out of there. Here we go. Able Company went out in front. The Chinese, the waiting Chinese, immediately put down a sheet of fire. Mortars, machine guns, burp guns, rifles. Able's casualties soon started to return. We huddled against the blowing clouds of snow and prayed to God that Abel wouldn't get so badly mauled that we would have to take their place. Our prayers were not answered. Battalion ordered us to pass through Abel and continue the attack. Although it was daylight, we could barely see where we were going. The Chinese did not need to see us. There was only one way for us to get at them straight along the road. They had our brooch well marked and covered with their weapons. As soon as we went past Abel, the Chinese mortars began to drop and their machine guns opened. The tracers were weird streaks of orange that flew out of the blinding snow clouds. Our new corpsman was quickly put to work. The Chinese were shooting down from a hill that flanked Woody as well as from straight ahead. Joe didn't want to send anyone up that hill fearing he would lose them in the heavy snow. You're just getting shot at. There's clouds up there at altitude, and so you're just getting shot from snow. It's like a cloud that's shooting machine gun fire at you. It's a nightmare. Back to the book, we were getting nowhere. Joe Kersaba was standing alongside the road behind Lee's platoon. He called me over to him. Bullets zinged and shrapnel whined around us, but Joe stood straight, and I stood with him. He had decided to risk a move up the hill on the left flank. Move your platoon up there, Joe. Oh, by the way, at this point, Joe had taken over a platoon. He was no longer just in charge of the mortars. Now one of the sergeants was in charge of the mortars. So he's now in charge of a rifle platoon. Move your platoon up there, Joe, he instructed me. See if you can take those guns out. They're killing us. He spread out his mat and traced the route, spread out his map and traced the route that I was to follow. He fell silent. A Chinese bullet had found its target, just below the rim of his helmet in the center of his forehead. A small black hole appeared there. Joe Kersaba's dead eyes stared at me for several seconds before he slumped slowly to the ground. I caught him in my arms as he fell and held him for a moment. Then I lowered him gently into the snow. Jesus, God. Joe Kersaba, my friend, Joe, who had helped me so much, shown me so much, who had gone to bat for me with Captain Wilcox, who had been my big brother. Joe Kersaba, whom I loved. Taking the mat from his mittened hands, I went forward to give it to Lee and inform him that he was the new company commander. On the way over, I got on my walkie-talkie to tell battalion that Kasaba was KIA. 
Their CP was close behind and the walkie-talkie worked. Through the murk, I spotted Lee's vest. He was walking the line behind his men who were prone in the snow, covering 50 yards of front. Lupacini with the bar was with him. I felt alone without Kelly. The Chinese fire was passing overhead high. The enemy couldn't see us either. Kursaba's dead, I told Lee. Caught one in the head. Damn, was all Lee said in response. You're the new skipper, I added, giving him the map. Joe told me to go up the hill on Woody's flank, see if I can get around those guns and take them out. You still want me to do that? We must do something, Lee said. They're killing us up from up there. That's what Joe said. Yes, see what you can do. Is your radio working? Yeah, I just talked to battalion on it. Okay, let me know the situation when you make it and when you're ready to attack. If we can get artillery, I don't want you to run into friendly fire. Aye, aye, skipper, I said. First Lieutenant Lee gave me a ironic little smile at that. So they're going to go up this hill and try and take out that machine gun. And as they're going up the hill, he starts hearing something. Someone called from behind us, Sir, Lieutenant Owen. It was Woody Taylor's runner. He was breathing hard from the effort he had made to catch up with us. Sir, Lieutenant Taylor wants you back down with the company. Lieutenant Lee's been hit, and Lieutenant Taylor wants you. On the double, he says. Damn it to hell. I might have been able to roll the Chinese from the flank and take out the guns that were holding back the company. I tried to get Woody on my walkie-talkie. I got more static. I waved for Morrison to rejoin us and the tiny platoon slipped and slid back down the hill. As they came behind me, the men cursed and complained about the second lieutenants making up their mind. Woody Taylor waited for us at the base of the slope. He was senior to me in rank and with Lee down, he was our new company commander. He said that battalion had sent up a pair of tanks and their firepower would cover a frontal assault up the hill. So here we go. Finally, we get tanks. And anyone that doesn't know, I am a huge fan of tanks. I love tanks. And all you tankers out there, thank you for being out there for these ground pounders. So he can the old school tanks. They had a little phone on the back of the on the back of the tank to talk to the guys that were inside the tank. He picks up that tank. As they get prepared to do this assault, and he says, put your 30s up below the ridge. Gook machine gun at 10 o'clock. Then on my command, hit them with the cannons. We'll jump off on that. A tinny voice came from within the tank. Hear you, loud and clear. The 30 caliber twin machine guns of both tanks began their jackhammer pounding. I watched red tracers stabbing up the snow-covered hill toward the dug-in Chinese gun that we could now see dimly. Now, they, under that firepower, they start to attack. Our line moved up the hill. 25 yards above me, two Chinese soldiers appeared from behind a large boulder. One had a rifle, the other a burp gun. As I swung my carbine toward them, I heard a grunt from Lupacini. He fired his bar straight into the air, and he fell forward in the snow. He did not move, and I knew he was dead. The best bar man we had. God damn it, you've lost Lupacini. I couldn't get my weapon on the two Chinese above me fast enough. The one with the rifle put a round in my left shoulder that spun me around. Its impact generated a shock like a powerful jolt of electricity that went through my entire body. Damn, how could I be hit? After all this, how could I get hit? I saw the burp gun trigger a burst at me. 
The snout of his weapon flashed, and I could not lift my feet above my knee above the knee-deep snow to get out of the path of his bullets. Two slugs tore into my right arm. Two more of the electric jolts, and my carbine flung itself away from my grasp. I saw it rise into the air as I fell into the snow. This cannot be happening. I tried to raise my head and reach to retrieve my carbine. Get the bastards. My arms wouldn't move. I could not raise myself. Joe's down, someone shouted. Bill Fuck's voice. Get the bastards. I heard myself yelling, get the bastards. I screamed in pain and overwhelming anger, and my Marines rushed past me and up the hill, leaving Lupacini and me in the snow. Get the bastards, I yelled again and again. It was all I could think to do. The young corpsman who had been assigned to us for the day's battle cry, for the day's battle heard my screams. Although the enemy fire still flayed the hill, he ran clumsily through the snow to reach my side. I was flat on my back and he crouched beside me. Okay, Lieutenant. He gasped for air with the exertion of the run laden with his aid kit and cold weather gear. His breath made puffs of white steam, and his smooth-shaven face was red with 25 below zero cold. With bullets zinging all around him, the new corpsman cut away my parka. The bullet through the shoulder had nicked my lung, and blood was gushed, and blood gushed from my mouth and down the front of my parka, covering his bare hands. Give me some morphine, I told the kid. The pain was terrible. I, 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 I can't, sir. I'm sorry. He shook with the cold and with his own fear. Bullets stung the air and raised little fountains of snow a few feet away. Give me some goddamn morphine, I yelled, spraying my blood on him. Sir, the morphine is frozen. I I can't give it to you. What the hell is wrong with you? Carry the goddamn stuff in your mouth. Don't you boots know? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. He put the serrette in his mouth and continued to cut away at my clothing. Just, just try and be still, sir. Even with the pain and the rage, I realized that no one had told the new doc how to take care of casualties in below zero weather. I gritted my teeth and tried to shut up. I didn't feel the jab when he shoved the serrette into my flesh, but I soon felt a wave of warmth come over me. The pain flowed away and the noise of the fighting above us receded. You're a good lad, I told the corpsman. I felt his hands doing something. You'll be a good Marine. Yes, sir. He sounded far away. Before I drifted off, I remembered the photos in my helmet. Those are the photos of his wife and his two kids. My pictures, I said. That's my wife and kids. Don't let the gooks get them. I won't, sir, said the corpsman who had risked his life to save mine and whose name I never knew. Woody Taylor was the only officer left with the company. He led the troops to the crest of the hill, fighting as a rifleman himself. The Chinese were on the run, and battalion ordered Baker 1-7 to keep after them. The troops were frozen and exhausted, but Woody pushed them on. Late in the day, they reached their objective. With their small number, they set a tight perimeter on the high ground overlooking the gap in the road that the engineers would bridge the next day. 
So they get that target secure, they get that hilltop, and now they're overlooking the gap where the engineers are going to build that bridge, and they set into a security perimeter. Woody Taylor put the weary company on 50% watch against the enemy assault he knew would come in the dark. It was the coldest night that the men had yet endured, a reported 30 degrees below zero. The wind howled at them in every direction. All through the unbearably cold hours until dawn, Taylor and Sergeant Richard moved from man to man to assure that no one froze to death. A detail of Korean soldiers who had been attached to the army arrived to bolster the perimeter, but most of them filtered away during the night. Several times, Marines heard the enemy moving around their lines in the darkness, but no attack came. Woody put out patrols early in the morning, before light. Within a hundred yards of the line, they found frozen dozens of frozen Chinese soldiers whose feet and hands were frozen to ice. The extreme cold had been on our side, holding back the attack. And the next day, Woody Taylor brought the remnants of the company down from the hills, marched them across the bridge and into the shelter of the town of Chin Hong Ni. Their battle ended there. Sergeant Richard took roll call. His final count was 27 men. Twenty seven men. And that is that's out of the original two hundred plus men of the company. And then on top of that, another hundred replacements that filled their ranks in this battle. So that's three hundred men and only twenty seven remained. Twenty seven. Now, few of us will ever face those kind of odds. And few of us are ever going to face those hellish demands. Few of us will ever stare at hell like these men did. But I want you to think about something. I want you to imagine. Imagine what we can accomplish if we apply even a fraction of the will that these men displayed, the iron will. A will that is stronger than their bodies, a will that is stronger than their minds. Because clearly, let's face it, their bodies, 
their bodies were broken and their minds in many cases were broken and they didn't want to go on but their will their will prevailed will will conquers all and our will is delivered through discipline and as Joe Owen stated many times in the book sometimes the only thing that pressed them on was discipline discipline the discipline to push yourself and you know we are all capable of more I and capable of more you are capable of more you can overcome the obstacles and the challenges and the enemy and you can overcome your own weaknesses and you can overcome your own desire to quit let let these men let these men be our examples of how to fight and how to use your will and how to drive on and let these men be our examples of how to live and don't don't let these men down And I think that's all I've got for tonight. Echo, if you uh, want to give me a second here to recover and talk about some stuff over there, I'd be much obliged. Yeah, man. This could be one of the rougher of transitions. Yeah. You know... It, it's, you got to remind yourself. This is a book. Mm-hmm. This happened. Mm-hmm. This has happened. This happened. This happened. And the fact that these guys could endure this and fight on, if that doesn't give you the inspiration that you need to step past whatever pathetic little challenges in front of you, you're wrong. Don't listen to this podcast anymore. Go somewhere else. Yeah, it's easy to forget it because of the kind of the contrast of your like your problem or or whatever you want to call it, your challenge, your task, your issue that you're trying to overcome. And then contrast with basically the luxury that you live in. And that luxury is kind of put on you this kind of way of feeling on, on a habitual level. So 
now you're faced with this task comparatively habitual, mon- habitual comfort is yeah. what we experience yes habitual exactly. comfort exactly right and, Someone that and gets oh i woke up early in the morning yeah <laughs> you know what i mean hey i worked out real hard and sweated yeah. a lot like yeah. okay yeah. really is that all i got i need yeah. to step it up man yeah i need to step it up yeah and the, you know i woke up early in the morning or you know I didn't get that much sleep, so my day oh, is really? hard. Cool. Or, yeah, your, your foot's not freezing off your body. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, but and and what's what's incredible about this is every single time you go, damn, you know, yeah. I'm glad they made it out of that. They didn't make it out of anything. <laughs> They're still just just yeah. surrounded. Yeah, yeah, and what's interesting is when you do remind yourself of this kind of stuff, like. Like right now, if anyone feels the way I do, I feel like, oh, I, I feel pretty much rejuvenated when I kind of flash back to my life for a second. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, cool. oh, man. I'm kind of stoked. Uh, yeah. I can go, you know, if I got to work out, I'm going to crush that workout because I got all my limbs right now. They didn't yeah. freeze off all this stuff. So the point there is when you re- are reminded of real adversity, whether you remind yourself or, the, or a book or, or something you see or hear about, um, it it gives you that like that added will to to overcome yeah it. maybe you you actually can take some of their will yeah. you can learn it yeah you can learn it you can say yeah. oh you know what oh i'm cold right now you're not cold yeah you're you're you are not cold yeah. you, you no. are not you're tired right now no you are nope. not tired nope. you're afraid right now no you are not afraid mm-hmm. learn yeah yeah learn you, you just increase your will through knowledge it's yeah. a real thing. Yeah, it's true. And when you do, my point being, when you do remind yourself of, of this kind of stuff, man, it helps. It'll help you do whatever it is or, or overcome the fact. That yeah, you, because you realize that you that human beings are capable of more, way more than yeah. what you than what you know. Yeah. More than I know. I'm capable yeah. of more than what I've done. I'm going to yeah. do more. Yeah. I'm going to get after it harder. That's the that's what I take away from this these kind of books. Obviously, besides there's incredible tactical lessons in there, there's incredible leadership. There's incredible, but the 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 testament of human will is inc- is unbelievable, unbelievable yeah. testament to human will. Yeah. So now I feel like, or it seems like anyway, that when we're faced or when I'm faced with like, oh, this is t- too hard, or dang, I got all this ahead of me. Dang, I got to do all. This. All really, all that is now looking at it, it seems like all it is is a deviation from my habitual comfort. Yeah, that's all yeah. it is. And I'll tell you what was awesome—the way that he reinforced reinforced several times because people talk about fear. I've talked about fear on this podcast before, but you know, I kind of say, "Hey, take action if you're afraid. You got to step into it." And yeah. he said that over and over again. Yeah. He actually had a methodology. Okay, if I'm afraid, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my I'm gonna stand up. I'm gonna get erect. I'm gonna find out what's going on, and I'm gonna get I'm gonna I'm gonna find out. I'm gonna assess the situation before my boss calls me. That's my timeline that I'm yeah, working yeah, on. Yeah. And that forces yeah, that him to take action. Yep. So many, so many great lessons learned in there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like yeah, we can transition over to ways to support. Well, yeah, if you we want, want, if people, if people do want to support the podcast out there, I yeah. guess you could if inform in the mood. them of how to do that. Uh, yeah. So the first way, and this is kind of a two-way street, you know. Um, okay, on it, supplements, right? Supplements, all kinds of cool stuff in fact my friend from quiet cameron he hit me up and was like 
hey, what's um, on it? Has this? It, it's a new uh, pre-workout, mm-hmm. you know, but it's non-stimulant. Usually pre-workouts, right. they crush up a bunch of Fedra and they feed it to you. Mm-hmm. They don't actually do that, but it seems like they do. I'm not saying that's all a bad thing, but it's not like healthy, you know. So anyway, this one is like a healthy one. It's like non-stimulant. Have it's you tried like, it? Oh, I got. I just got it. I haven't tried it yet. But no. I'm gonna get report after back it. to us once you've yeah. tried it. Yeah, but <laughs> if you're into like you know, sometimes you go on the website and you get like caught up reading all the cool stuff and all this stuff. Like the, it's on there, so you can look at it. And see you know, if you it mentioned that a lot. Good. You actually mentioned that a lot. How you go to the on it website and yeah. you. Read, I, I I'm. Maybe I just don't do as thorough research as you mm-hmm. when it comes to checking out where my krill oil comes from. But sure. I know what I'm looking for and I go do it. But yeah. if you're more like Echo and you want to spend time on the website reading and researching, yep. it's a good place to do is on it.com. Throw a slash Jocko on there if you want to get a little money saved. Yeah, if you want to send, save 10%, 10% off slash Jocko. So it's on it.com slash Jocko. Anyway, they got some good stuff. You can pretty much rest it. Not pretty much. You can rest assured that it's all good stuff. It's not a bunch of ephedra crushed in to powder form, you know, and they're selling it as a, I don't know. It's krill Vasodilator or something like this. Big it's words. It's not that. Big words, Echo. You know, I read now. So anyway, yeah, 10% off on, it, on it.com slash Jocko. Shroom Tech is dope too. Alpha Brain. These are all part of the, the what do you call it, EDC. Uh, everyday carry everyday yeah. everyday carry. everyday consumption um, everyday consumption i like that right like you see um, yeah krill oil took that today already alpha brain that's like every other day it depends some EODC. people get on it yeah get yeah, on, yeah. Get on uh, alpha brain yeah and every day some people take it every day yeah some people take shroom tech every day yeah i take shroom tech when needed yeah me when too. anticipated needed yeah krill oil every day krill oil every day for sure without question Strong bone every day. Yeah, I got this uh, peanut butter warrior bar when needed, bro. Yeah, when I've been but having one every day, yeah. well, two every day for yeah, the past see, like three, four happens. days. Yeah, it's because it's so easy. Yeah. Oh, I want to eat something healthy and that tastes good, and I'm kind of hungry, and I want to get it really quickly without having to do anything but peel open a wrapper. Boom, warrior bars in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, guaranteed. But yeah, there's some cool stuff. I got this peanut butter. It's not peanut butter. It's cashew, almond, and I don't know something else, but it's real good. That's okay. what I got. It's real gourmet too. <laughs> MCT oil. It's all up in there. Anyway, good stuff. On I, I do have an MCT oil too, by the way. Yeah. I take the coconut MCT oil from on it mm-hmm. and I mix it with heavy whipping cream. I don't yeah. I don't do that until it's whipped cream. Right. I just pour it in a little bit in there. I stir it up and I drink heavy whipping cream, which is just all fat, which is awesome. Yeah. With MCT, which is more fat. And yeah. I drink all that. Yeah, and it's and good it's, fat. It's, yeah, it's good fat, but it also it's it's very very fulfilling, <laughs> very very. Yeah, and I'm not. Game. I'm talking. I almost. It's a little bit bigger. What I, I have little glasses that I mix it in. They're bigger than a shot glass, uh-huh. but they're smaller than a cocktail glass. Right. It's called the rocks glass. Mm, perhaps in the bar industry. Is okay. What it's yeah, called. you know more about that stuff. Yeah, it's bigger than yeah. 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 MCT. I mean, not to go into all the fats and good fats versus bad. Um, it's more fulfilling. Fat has nine calories per gram. Yeah. Carbohydrates and, and protein, protein have four. Four, yeah. Alcohol, seven. Hmm. Little trivia. I was not aware of that. Yeah. It's all good. Alcohol is not, I don't think they sell alcohol on, on it, so <laughs> you're all good there. Um, but that's a good way. I feel like I'm repeating it. Onit.com slash Jocko. But if you do want the 10% off, you got to add the slash Jocko. 
If you want to pay the full price, which is cool too, by the way, just go on it.com. Anyway, another way to support, if you're in the mood to support, the Amazon link, click through. It's Christmas. Christmas coming up. What is today? Whatever the date is today. Christmas coming up within, within what, three weeks, two mm-hmm. weeks, whatever. Anyway, when you do your shopping, if you're like, hey, I'm going to shop for Christmas, for my friends, family, whatever, and it's in your mind that you want to support podcasts, just go to our website, jockostore.com or Jocko, um jacklepodcast.com a lot of people ask me hey where are your favorite books that you've read can you send us a list of those and yeah. i say yeah go to www.jacklepodcast.com all the books that we've talked about on the podcast the book that i read today go and buy it yeah go and buy it colder than hell a marine rifle company at chosen reservoir by joseph r owen buy it read it i could have i could have just read the entire book on air Obviously, I'm not going to do that, but it take a long time. It would take a long time, but there's so much stuff that I that I absolutely had to skip and say. You know, I was like struggling with myself, going, uh, I, "I used up most of a highlighter and a half highlighting <laughs> this book." So, you know, but order this book; you'll have it on the website. Yeah, it's, it's a whole website. page. All of them are on there. Yeah, on the page. you go top menu. Uh, you know books from the podcast i think it's called you click on it and it, there's links directly to amazon yeah so yeah boom there's another way to support but it's all amazon you click through uh, if you're if you're just doing regular shopping there's a banner on the uh, kind of on the right side you click through there do your shopping and it supports the podcast two two birds one stone mm. kind of thing anyway also you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes we jocko will probably well no you already mentioned this oh we got on the top podcast of 2016 list itunes big deal anyway subscribe to their youtube uh not youtube but um, we, we, itunes we were on the top podcast of 2016 list from itunes is your from statement iTunes. correct yep. yeah that just popped in my head because when you subscribe you subscribe on itunes leave a review if you're in the mood actually leave a review and make sure it's awesome not yeah. awesome in terms of good, but just make sure that it's fun for me to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll, that'll invoke uh, more uh, the will to read. Or if it's not read. fun to read, some good points that you like or don't like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I like reading those reviews. I do. I've read every single review. So Dang. I'm reading them. It's good. And then uh, Keeps YouTube. me in check. Yeah. yeah on your make team. sure we're delivering. Yeah, you got to deliver, I guess. Um, subscribe to the YouTube channel. So we've been slowly putting more videos on there, you know, excerpts and whatnot. Jocko McNuggets, where you can sub- <laughs> or, or share, you know, with your friends or whatever. Quickly, I'm put more. I'm put more today even. Um, and then yeah, some good ac- excerpts I think. Subscribe to that. Stay informed, video wise. Also, we have a store. Jocko has a store. It's called JockoStore.com. So if ever we all wear clothes, T-shirts, right, why not make it a Jocko T-shirt? That's kind of the, the thing, you know? Um, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing, you know? Brad, how's this? So Chris, I don't know if I showed you this. So Chris Rue is our friend, mm-hmm. fellow black belt. Black He's at, I want to say, our, I, I don't even know the whole story. I was trying to call him. He was like, oh, me, but there's no, I t- totally know this story. Go. Yeah. So yeah, he's um, the, one of the one of the cadets. Yeah, cadet at, at West Point. Yeah. So, um, 
he's I don't know how do you know how he I saw don't know him? how he saw him or whatever but a cadet at West Point and I don't have I don't have his name right now in uniform yeah yeah he's in uniform but the uniform that they wear it's cold up there so they right. wear these basically it's like a giant cape right right, right. and underneath the cape he had a, a, a Jocko podcast shirt on he had actually he actually had the straight up Jocko face on that thing yep. and it was he said he posted an awesome picture on social media of him of him uh pulling up his cape and he had that 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 t-shirt on yeah Jocko's and face maybe that was the secret weapon that led the army to the first victory <laughs> in 14 years over navy in football Tom Neal Tom Neal yes yep. he's the, he was the cadet Doing it, yeah. He Representing was, in the wild, in the wild, really in the wild, up. double in the wild, yeah. Well, that's in even the beyond the wild. That's, I mean, I don't know what the regulations are, but I'm yeah. fairly <laughs> certain the, the the t-shirt, the Jocko Podcast t-shirt, is not part of Army regulations, unless it is now. Who not? I'm just perhaps, saying, you never know. Perhaps, but yeah. But he's been he's been actually in touch with, before he went to West Point. He was oh, when he okay. was getting ready to go. He was like reaching out and. He was getting after it, ready yeah. to go crush it at this point. So good for yeah. him. Into some nogi jujitsu as yeah. well. True, true. Chris. Anyway, yeah, so jockostore.com, that's where you can get, like, cool shirts, uh, discipline equals freedom, you know, all these things. Uh, some women's stuff on there, some hoodies on there, some rash guards on there for, for, yeah, some activity. You know what I'm talking about. Um, and some patches on there, the regulation one, mm-hmm. with the, you know, the... That one, the the Velcro that's um, that's on there. Some other stuff. So yeah, go on there, look at it. You don't have to buy nothing. Just look at it. If you like something, go ahead, get it. Good way to support. And boom, you got a shirt. Look at that. Um, also, okay. So <laughs> here's a here's the thing. This started a while ago. Okay, so I'll tell this story. I'll keep it short. <laughs> but so I was like, I don't have. Echo went rogue again. Basically, went, yeah. So. <laughs> And it started with kind of nothing. So, you know, okay, we're talking about luxury and like, okay, fuck, I only got six hours sleep. I'm usually used to eight and a half or something mm-hmm. like that, right? So, but I know I can do a workout. And I know you don't get that much sleep or if you're tired or not tired or whatever, you still push through the workout. So, but I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, you're hard, your money, whatever, but you got to, there has to be times where you got to basically talk yourself into it. Basically. So I'm like, all right, like, what do you say? You got to, you know, be honest. Like, what do you say, you know, to yourself? And I, I figured it, it would have, you know, like a lot of stuff that you can always say, like, you know, we, we have this luxury and all this stuff. I'm like, all right, but let me. So I asked you and what you told me, I was like, OK, that um, that was good. <laughs> that was legit right there. So and, and it worked. It totally worked. Um, So what i did you know uh, one thing led to another kind of in my head so i was like all right you know what we're gonna do we're gonna record that you're gonna say that i'm gonna record it and on top of that not just the working out and usually like with food and stuff like donuts and i joke around that i eat like whole things of oreos because i kind of that's just a joke like sometimes i do but but, you do uh, yeah Mm. but i have willpower like that's not a problem with but i'm some people don't so i'm like yeah if that workout thing that you just said could apply to like all these other things, we're going to record that too. Then you start thinking, and you know, a lot of people have been saying, Hey, what about like a ringtone? You should have ringtones or, you know, for my alarm and all this stuff. So I'm like, all right, well, basically one thing led to another. We recorded them and I put them on iTunes. (laughs) (laughs) Called it psychological warfare. 
It's good move, I think. On my so part. it's on iTunes. Yes, on iTunes. It's like, yeah, so we're trying to, and here's another, so this kind of ties it back to how you can support the podcast. Look, so we hit about eight to ten birds with one stone with this. It's 99 cents for a track. Or you can buy like the whole thing. I think there's like 13, 14 tracks on there for nine bucks. I think that's kind of standard. Mm-hmm. But so that's how much um, I put it or I listed it as. Um, and you just download it. You can put it as your ring. There's one for waking up. Actually, there's two for waking up, right? So you Isn't can there put three for waking up. Maybe, th- yeah. But there's a few. Because like, so. in my mind, I pictured people like, oh, you want to wake up? Cool. We can cover yeah. down on that. I go through <laughs> yeah. that every day waking up. Well, so Let's yeah. Be able to do that. If so if so it's sort of like thing. a song that you could buy. It's like a song that you could buy on iTunes. Like yeah, a regular same song, process. Or, yes. or an album. Yes, same process. You, you just, yeah, it. you just download. You can buy one. Track, two tracks, or the whole thing, or whatever, you know. I mean, it's 99 cents, so it's not like... You gotta and just you're supporting the podcast. Yes, exactly right. Here's here's a little tip I was thinking about, though. So, you know, your wake-up, there's like oh, so a few wake-up ones, right? I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. If you put that as your alarm, clear it with your wife or whoever you're sleeping with. I'll tell you right now, if that thing, <laughs> but if she don't know about it and that comes on, oh, it'll, she, it'll freak her out, no, man. That's a good so, dude, that's a little pro tip right there if you're using it. But I will, I will almost, I'll say it's a hundred percent guarantee. If you're, if you felt like how I felt with workouts, like I'm really not in the mood to go do a workout and you listen to the workout one, I will say with 100% certainty, you will not skip the workout. <laughs> I'll say that right now. That's legit. You know, anyway psychological warfare who's the artist i think it's jocko willink okay i think because that's how they list them by artist right yeah i think so did i just did i just become an artist real quick there (laughs) that's scary let's call it something else you kind of got can i be something else you you kind of got an and pushed into it though so you know artist author uh podcaster technically is that a thing yeah, I think so. I heard it. Anyway, yeah, give your wife the heads up. If you uh, get these guys the are fighting a war in Korea, I'm over here being an artist. What happened <laughs> to me? But it's all here. No, wrong. Not going to happen. No, it's all for a good cause, though. I'm telling you because if anyone's like I am, which I'm I'm straight up, it's more than an assumption. I'm, I am of the belief that pe- some people are like me in that way where you just don't feel like it. I know we just read this, and now we all feel like it. I understand that. But you don't have that feeling every single day. I'm telling you right now, this helps. This helps you get after it. Help me for sure. Anyway, psychological warfare. Yep. All right. Also, hey, on iTunes, or sorry, not on iTunes, but on Amazon, you can get some white tea. It, it's like I said, we're working through the supply chain issues, but it's been popping up every couple days. They refill. You can order it. It tastes good, and it makes you feel good, and it will increase your deadlift capabilities to a minimum of 7,000 pounds. Many are getting up to 8,000 pound deadlifts <laughs> from drinking chocolate white tea. Uh, yeah. You can get a get after it mug, by the way, too. So those are, they're bigger than normal. I'll say that. Yeah. They're bigger than a normal mug. A normal mug is not as big as a get after it mug. Bro, so it's like it, with every sip, like you're actually, you're doing bicep curls. You're so like you're, little... <laughs> you're getting, actually that's not my joke. I could stole that from Twitter. So that's that. Uh, also on Amazon, you can pick up Colder Than Hell, the book I read today. Do it. Put it in your collection of badass books. You can pick up another book that's called Extreme Ownership. That's written by me and my brother Leif Babin. 
it is also a book that's about combat, but it's also more of a book about leadership. And if you want to give someone, speaking of the holiday season, if you want to give someone a gift, that's going to, you know, some gifts that you get, mm-hmm. they go in the drawer that doesn't get opened anymore, right? Yeah. And then it takes you a couple of years and you finally throw it away. <laughs> Don't give that gift. Give yeah. the gift that someone's going to say, man, man, you gave me that book. It's legit. I read it. Oh, I implemented this. Hey, what did you think about the gift? Give them a gift that's going to have long-term value. Mm. Long-term value. Mm. Give them a little book called Extreme Ownership. You can get it on Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, speaking of Extreme, extreme Ownership, man. also, we got the muster. Number two, zero, zero, 002, May 4th and 5th at the Marriott Marquis in New York City. Now, the last one that we had, we had people from 42 different states. We had people from five foreign countries, and we had leaders at every level of the chain of command in every size business that you could imagine. So it was a super diverse group of people that are all together with, they had one similarity, and that is they want to get better and crush it in leadership, in their business, and in their life. So that's what we do at the muster. Leif and I, who are there, obviously. When I say we're there, I, I don't mean we're there, meaning we're in the same building, but we're hiding somewhere. No, 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 we're there. We are actually with you. We are sitting down with you. We are talking. We are, we're not hiding behind the curtain. We don't even have a backstage. They said, well, where do you want your backstage area? We don't need one. We're not going backstage. People want to come and talk and learn. We want to learn from them. So come and get it. I've said this every time. This is going to sell out. It's going to sell out, and then you won't be able to go. And also the prices are going up. So as you get close to the event, the prices go up. The reason we do that is so we incentivize you to buy the tickets now so that we can plan better. Mm. Right? We like to be plan. We plan and we prepare things. If all of you sign up, you know, April 22nd, we got some logistics problems. I don't want to be in the same boat I'm in with Jocko White T where I've (laughs) failed logistically. Mm -hmm. And it takes me a while to get it back on track. So sign up early, save yourself some money, and let us be better prepared for that. If you got questions, you can email muster at echelonfront.com or you can check out the website www.extremeownership.com and we will see you there and we will and, and you'll see me and you'll see Leif you'll see Echo Charles and you'll see everybody else we'll all be there getting after it while you're waiting to hang out with us at the muster if you want to kind of hang out with us virtually well Echo and I are both kind of cruising the cruising the interwebs. Yeah. Twitter, yep, we're there. Instagram, mm-hmm, we're there. And you even gonna see us. <laughs> you even gonna see us on that Facebook, you boy. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And finally, we appreciate you listening and supporting the podcast and of course spreading the word but don't just listen do execute take a look 
at your life and see where you can apply the kind of human will we heard about tonight. The kind of human will that overcomes challenges and obstacles, whether you're fighting a war or you're fighting a fire or you're fighting crime or you're building a bridge or you're building a piece of software or whether you're doing HVAC work or retail work or whether you're healing kids or you're teaching kids. No matter what you are doing, what can you do to do it better? What can you do to make you better? Ask yourself that question. Apply that will. And get after it. So, until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.